Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. Danielle Renee. Hey, gang, head over to Mignolaverse.com to check out a book report that I wrote. It's quite a read, just my thoughts on what I've noticed from rereading Hellboy these last few weeks. And thanks a lot to Mignolaverse for letting me ramble on on that article. There's a lot of really good content on there. I was listening to this awesome interview... Kevin Alford, he did a an interview with Israel Skelton, the guy that does Skelton Crew replicas. Yeah. Nice. It's a really long interview. It's really worth digging into. I don't want to give away all the spoilers, but they talk about some really cool stuff on there. One of the replicas they made was a troll the troll witch spoon, but they only made like 500 of them. Yeah. And so the guy uh, Skelton talks about they had a block of wood, a block of pure cherry for oh. every single spoon like they didn't like put pieces of wood together. Right, Each one was yeah. made from like a solid block, which I thought was really interesting. And he was saying, "That's it. They're not making it. They're no, not going to make yeah. any more." Oh wow, that's really interesting. Um, he also says one of his personal goals is to build a life-size Roger. Oh, which I think would be so <laughs> awesome. Like, can you like you know all their stuff looks comic accurate? Yeah, so wow. you know it would be like probably like a comic accurate Aww. full size. He says he he wants to kind of that's one of his personal projects for at home and then on when we talked about the skeleton crew replicas on the episode where we talked about the third wish on the island i wondered who writes the little the little details oh yeah Yeah, and so yeah so kevin asked him that question i i had told kevin i wanted to know that israel skeleton he writes them wow but then Mignola approves them and sometimes changes them. Okay, cool. And he's like, oh, um, wow. I, I think in the little interview he says, uh, he says sometimes he changes it to something funnier. <laughs> and that made me think of, for the Bog Rouge nail, it says, collected by Hellboy, hammered into his head by three mermaids <laughs> or something like that. I need to I need to go back and listen to that. I haven't really had time, but I, I, I do want to listen to that. It sounds really interesting. Same here. I haven't listened to it. But I need to. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely worth it. So Everybody, go listen to that with us. <clears throat> they have yeah. a lot of good content on there, so go check out Mignolaverse.com. Hey, John. Huh? I just wanted to say uh, for all of our <laughs> listeners out there, if you're listening to this today, the day it came out, Tuesday. Uh, yeah, o- we're recording it on Sunday, which is today. But by the time this comes out, it will be Tuesday, which is October 16th, which is John's, John's birthday. birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday, John. Happy birthday, John. Uh, thanks, thanks, gang. <laughs> Everybody. Be sure to let John know. Yeah. Happy birthday. Ah, oh, shucks. You guys sure know how to make a guy feel special or whatever. <laughs> um, so cynical. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Alex Aronowitz from Mignolaverse. He also sent us that clip from David Harbour saying boom. Oh, right. He sent us the audio of that, so I'm going to cut that into the episode He's right here. He's such a good so, sport. So everybody David Harbour nice. seems like a real good sport. Yeah, and thank you so much, Alex, for sending yeah. us that little clip. That was very thoughtful of you. So we're going to cut that into the episode right here so everybody can listen to that. It's gonna, this is going to sound like the stupidest question in the entire con. Fantastic. I love Hellboy in the comics. Mike always had him, not always, but had him yelling boom. When he punches people. Is that happening in the movie? And if, if, if you don't actually know it, if you don't want to spoil it, Dave, would you do one for us? Would you, use, would you yell boom for us? Oh, crap. Yeah! <laughs> boom! I'm sorry! Thank you. 
Thanks so much to John Larita for the awesome recommendation on Facebook. He wrote some really kind words about yes, all three of us. that was very sweet. That was really nice. Thank you very much. Very thoughtful. If you're enjoying the podcast every week, please give us a like, rate, or review on iTunes or our Facebook page. That really helps us out and makes our um, podcast more visible. <clears throat> Sorry, I feel like my throat is so it's gravelly. Okay. Yeah, he didn't. <clears throat> he didn't write just a couple of sentences. Man, he really took a- some time to write a thoughtful. Uh, yeah, a little was, review there. I thought that was very sweet. I agree completely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read it and I was just like, "Oh, it's always really nice when you. people get involved." And I think that's exactly what John had in mind when he, you know, came to us and started this. Is that he wanted it to be a community-driven thing where everyone's joining in and it's a book club, you know. So that's always very um, encouraging when we see things like that. It's very sweet. Yeah, and. Actually, we've been having more listeners lately, so I thought it would be good if Danielle could tell everyone what the podcast is about. Well, we get together um, every Sunday and we we, uh, talk about, well, John gives us a little book assignment first uh, at the beginning of the week and he tells us, hey, you're going to be reading these books and you're going to be reading these stories and then we read them and we come together on Sunday and talk about, you know, what we found out about the stories, what we... You know, we all make little notes mm-hmm. in our little notebooks about uh, what we liked, what it, oh, this made me think of this over here, and oh, did you know this? Do a little bit of research about the history of this. Oh, I'm curious about this, and it kind of leads to little avenues here and there, and so, you know, talk about the art, talk about the story, what it meant to you, the impact it had on you, and we get together and discuss it, and it actually really leads to a lot of awesome conversations and very... Yeah, so... Basically, um, the conversation continues throughout the week, you know, on our social media. We try to encourage everybody to come in and make comments and uh, say what they thought. And then the following week, I'll read all the listener feedback. And then at the end of every episode, Aubrey will tell us what we're going to read next week. Yeah. And it is very community driven. Yeah. There is a wonderful, as we bring up all the time, there's a wonderful community on uh facebook which you think would not be a thing but it really is <laughs> that they they're the the mods and the admins there do a great job of keeping it very everyone's friendly and it's very nice and so jerry turnbull runs that's called art mike Mignola's art yeah and they just celebrated a year they just celebrated one year yeah. of doing that and then that was actually um something that mr Mignola's wife who kind of recommended that Jerry do that? I think so. I like think that. she had something to do with Please that. Please someone yeah. correct me if I'm if I'm wrong on that. But and then also, yeah. you know, Mignolaverse.com, great little community over there, um, run by Kevin Alford and and so we just are surrounded by wonderful people that we've had the opportunity to to talk about this stuff with and we're we're very grateful for that so we just invite everyone to join along and yeah and i also want to shout out the Mignolaverse subreddit on reddit there's a good little community there and then um which again i know what you're thinking I like know. reddit <laughs> has a really bad reputation but like that's and which is well deserved in some cases but this specific little area of reddit is very nice safe little community yeah and i'm also a big fan of mark tweedale and the multiversity comics their mignolaversity stuff is all real good we're kind of following the chronology loosely from multiversity comics so give them a shout out too on our last episode aubrey danielle and i ranked our favorite stories in five different categories and you can too i've got a survey monkey link up on our social media thingers thank you to everyone who Went and took that survey. It's really interesting to see the results from that. It was yeah. really cool. So I think I'm going to give it another week or so. 
because I sure, didn't yeah. I didn't say last week how we were officially doing the survey. So I just, just was been like, really interesting to see. Yeah, it is. Uh, so I, I'm going to give it another week or so, and then next week I'll probably talk about the survey, sure. the results from the survey. But I'm going to give people another week in case they didn't know where to find it. If you go to any of our social medias on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, you can find the link to that survey. And I also like how some people are commenting in the. Um, on the thing on the on the Facebook thing, they're like, "Oh, these are my top three. And right? People are like, "I have, think somebody said they had a rotating between two yes. and three, and I'm like, <laughs> "I feel you. I know that feeling it's all tough, too well." Yeah. <laughs> yes, and I'll talk about those two probably next week. Some people have commented on their top threes, so we're going to talk about some listener feedback. Kevin Alford said of our conversation last week, he said, "We all heard you say Star Wars. It's ah. okay." Everyone does it at least a thousand times personally. So, yeah, thank you for comforting me on that. We also had Ross Radke on Twitter. Um, He's a great artist that I've been following. He says, as a non-denominational Christian, I've occasionally cringed at your lack of Bible literacy. Mm. But I appreciate your comments about Catholic saints and the traditions being heavily influenced by paganism. I feel like the more institutionalized churches have more in common with various pagan and shamanistic beliefs than they would like to admit. The culture and cosmology of the Catholic Church, Mormonism, Scientology, cults, and Ponzi schemes has so much overlap, it seems to point to something more universal in how human societies need to function, even in the modern era. There is a deep need for hierarchy and mystery. To try and loop this back around to Hellboy, I remember a quote from Mike Mignola. He said that in the early days of Hellboy, a member of the Church of Satan and an evangelical pastor both told him they loved his work during the same week. So he figured he must be on to something. Sure. I think this speaks to the power of art and storytelling to help us connect with and have empathy towards people and different worldviews. Apologies for the ramble. It's almost 2.30 a.m. and I should be asleep (laughs) instead of tweeting. So I really loved this comment and I really enjoyed just the amount of... Uh, just the thought-provoking. Very thoughtful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it it really made me think a lot about, you know, we're obviously coming from our certain, you know, areas of belief and yeah. also our knowledge of those kinds of things. And I don't have a lot of knowledge in, in that area. But I think that that's one th- great thing about having the book club and having someone like Ross on board is, you know, if we miss things, I mean, please let us know. Please right. throw in those little... You know, yeah. I'm always trying to learn more about the trivia and the history of these different things. And I do lack in some of that area. Sure. Um, but I just really like the idea of Mignolo's work also just being appre- being appreciated across all the different beliefs. Absolutely. That is very interesting. I'm sure that sure. Yeah. I'm sure that amongst our listeners, we probably have a lot of different you know, beliefs or people who have different beliefs. And I think that we can all appreciate the work. We can all kind of appreciate all those folklore references sure. and well, references his, to heaven and hell and demons fact, and yeah, everything. The, yeah. the fact that this work brings so many different people together is a really good point. I think that that's really interesting. And I do, the point is also well taken that what I really got out of his comment is that it's not productive to just assume everyone's coming at, looking at it through the, that specific lens that you are. It's not everyone's going to be looking at things through the same, right. through the same, through that same lens, through that same perspective. Keeping that in mind when you're, interacting with people over source material as interesting as this is always going to be productive. You know, you, you always have to remember that not everyone's going to have the same perspective as you and to be able to share those perspectives and say, well, here's what I got out of it. Here's what I got out of it. Let's put that together. And we all learn something and it's all, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's neat. 
I guess like I I was kind of raised as a um, in a Christian denomination. Mm. Um, I won't go into which one. Here. Right. No. I mean, but that's, um, yeah, it, it, it they were heavily. Um, against the catholic church this particular christian denomination so they rejected all of that kind of stuff so i don't really like know. the roman catholic church they were yeah. like no we're right. different from that we're gonna go do this thing they yeah they were basically okay. like the roman catholic church is the antichrist kind of interesting thing. Okay. and so they rejected all of that imagery and so sure. i don't really know any of that and just haven't really taken the time to study it because in my later years in life i've really been more interested in like the uh, iconography and stuff you're saying like, yeah all the, yeah okay yeah and in my later years in life i've been more interested in studying you know science and black holes and sure uh, and yeah the there's i mean there's a lot there kind of stuff but uh, so yeah yeah and so that's that's that is really interesting and i think that not everybody really even knows that i think that a lot of people when they come across to, they meet someone new they might even be assuming that that person knows everything about their own worldview like they're coming at the world from I went to the specific church and we all, whatever, did the thing where we make the sign of the cross. Some people don't do that, even though they do consider themselves Christian. So it's it's very different. There's a lot of different things. It seems like a lot of the den- denominations don't agree on all that sort of stuff. And so to just assume that everyone knows what the heck you're talking about, you know, is you're not going to get quite as far in a discussion as if you say, oh, that's interesting. Well, what, what was it like for you growing up? That's really, you know, and that's, I think, something that we do take into consideration on this podcast. We try to be like, look, if you have a different thing right into us and let us know. Right. And we want to learn about that, you know, so that's even down to the pronunciation of things. Yeah, no, I definitely so. um, am game for all that, for all that information and school us, school us on our, uh, on, on all those things that we don't have knowledge of. Some feedback on Macoma. We also heard from Ross Radke on this, um, for this story. He said, I usually dislike the, it was all a dream trope. But Mignola makes it work in Hellboy by using the blurring of reality as a recurring motif to show Hellboy struggling with his own identity through lucid visions that may or may not reveal truth from his past and future. Right. The way Hellboy shrugs off the crazy dreamlike visions is similar to real life. I've often woken up weirded out by dreams that revealed more about my inner psyche than I want to admit, yet are forgotten before breakfast. I'm curious what others think about dreaming as a literary device. In Hellboy, there is a sense that dreams or visions are portals through which some entities can reach across time and space to influence the present, to send messages, or even affect physical reality. And he had some more interesting thoughts on Hellboy, and they got really philosophical, but they started to drift into more spoilery stuff. Right, okay. So I didn't want to talk about it, but when we do get to some of that stuff, I think it would be nice to revisit this conversation, because... He really, Those are really he really had a very yeah. philosophical, and I was just like reading this stuff, and I think I just put an emoji of like my brain exploding, like <laughs> or something like that, because it was just like so much. I was like, wow, those are some huge ideas. And I wish I could talk about them now, but it would spoil stuff sure. that we're going to yeah. get to way well, later. Those are some really thought-provoking comments, and I'm curious to see what the rest mm-hmm. of them are. But yeah, I mean, I'll wait for that. And I think that that's very um, very well articulated, what he has to say. And I, I would uh, not mind getting into that discussion for sure. That's interesting. So, yeah, uh, about the dreams as a trope, I feel I hear that a lot. A lot of people say they don't like the it was all a dream trope. And, right. Well, if it's and, well done, um, it's, you know. And it, that also follows along the lines of I don't like time travel type stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah, because it's all, it, it feels like, you know, all this stuff happened, but then it wasn't real. So it didn't really happen. And it makes me think, are you just waiting for the ending or yeah. are you just enjoying the journey as yeah. it happens? Uh, but then also dreams as a literary device. I mean, 
wow, that's like a whole nother can of worms because, <laughs> I mean, just like look at anything with like, you know, I mean, you could say something like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is kind of dreamlike. Right. Or the movie Waking Life, which was all, was it like, you know, a dream during death or was it just like, what was that all right. about? Right. Or there a nightmare in Elm Street where Freddy's getting <laughs> you in your dreams. <laughs> well, your, your point about enjoying the journey is well taken. And if it's good storytelling... Mm -hmm. It shouldn't matter what the vehicle is. If it's good storytelling, it's good storytelling. And that's yeah. all there is to it. It doesn't matter what the subject matter is. And so I think a lot of people can take subject matter and make it unenjoyable mm. and very hacky and tropey. And some people can take that material that they, you know, may or may not be experiencing. Like he was saying, like, sometimes I wake up from a dream and I'm like, whoa, is that just a part of another life I'm having? Like, what is that? Yeah. And we've all, I think, here at this table experienced you know, varying degrees of, of, of that. And I think that if a storyteller comes along or a team of storytellers, let's, you know, the art and the writing and all that stuff is kind of sometimes a lot of different people. But if that comes along and we can appreciate it for what it is, sometimes that can really be an excellent window into ourselves and each other and, and a good discussion. But it's just like anything else. If it's good, it's good. And if it's not, it's crap. Like there's, yeah. you know, it just I depends mean, on who's making it. I guess like if it's a really bad story and then all of a sudden it's like, wake up, it was all a dream. <laughs> then I'm like, okay, that was just like, lousy <laughs> storytelling and you wrote yourself out of it. Wasn't and, there a, um, like a TV show? Was it Dallas? Dallas. Dallas. It is Dallas that I was thinking of. That JR whole season and... was a dream. Oh, oh man. man. But I think also, just like, like Danielle said, I think it's, if it's a good story, like obviously Mignola is a great storyteller, so he makes that kind of work with Makoma. It also made me think of Mulholland Drive because oh, you could sure. say, oh, yeah, you could kind of say that that movie is one of those, it was all a dream, but is it? Was it? You know, and there's so much mystery in trying to figure that out. That if it strikes to the heart of it's, you. It's, if it's, it's an amazing that really, movie. Yeah, that's but what But that's I'm because saying. David Lynch kind of makes it work in his way, I think. He and, drives yeah. Yeah. right into the heart of something when he makes something. And that's, you know, you can appreciate that for what it is. I think that that's. For the record, half of Mulholland Drive was a dream. Well, yeah. Spoiler <laughs> alert for Mulholland Drive. I also, go back and rewatch that. A, man. Yeah, I want to rewatch that. Too. Almost twenty-year-old movie. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I could. I mean, I could watch that movie a hundred times and still be just. Like, oh yeah, love it. Anyway, yeah. Some more feedback on the ghoul. Um, we're going to have some more grizzly talk here, so if you want to avoid that, just skip ahead a little bit. Thanks so much for Kevin Alford for bringing this topic back up. Oh, no. Oh, no. He said... Yeah. If you need to skip this, now's the time. <laughs> this is going to be bad. He said, uh, he said, we're over here in Japan like, psh, when we were talking about the leg or whatever. And he posted a link, and this is really messed up, about this guy. He cooked his... Wiener and balls, oh, ball, no. ball, ball, balls, and uh, and he and, 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 beans. and he did it for some people, and uh, and it had a link, and on the link it said, "Warning, this is this oh. and that," and I just couldn't bring myself to do it, guys. No. I just could not bring myself to look at those pictures. That's not a question I need to answer. Uh, um, I, I couldn't bring myself to click on the link. I do a lot for this podcast, but no, uh, you know, that's not necessary. <laughs> but anyway, Drew Campbell also said. And Aubrey, just to ease your mind, the guy that ate his foot, he actually didn't eat the foot. He ate part of his lower leg. See how much better that is, Aubrey? It's not. It, it is not. <laughs> not, not, not at all. It's not better. No. Oh, God. Some feedback on the sleeping and the dead. Edgar Sid said, I love Scott Hampton's rendition of Hellboy. Although I think he's drawn his right hand of doom with five fingers instead of four on a panel or two. I didn't notice that. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. yeah. I have to oh. go back and look for that. Interesting. 
Jan Niklas said about the vampires in that story, I like that they're old fossils, basically frozen in time and more kin to their fair folk than the humans they were before. It's fitting that they still wear their old uniforms and think that they live in Europe 500 years ago. For them, the humans are still stupid peasants with their torches and pitchforks. <laughs> they are the true ruling class, so one day vampires will reign again. It fits into Mike's archetypes of evil idiots that live in the past, and I find them more interesting than the frog people. Uh-huh. The vampire's evil is a very human evil that fulfills the same role as the frogs and the Ogdruhem. They are human evil, but we can still relate and understand them, while still being fairly complex characters. Right. I love that they don't seem to be great fighters and rely more on producing minions and changing shape. It gives them clear weaknesses while still keeping them menacing. So yeah, I like yeah, that. Yeah, a good perspective yeah, about we're, like, we're, the overall yeah. kind of direction that that's going in. And uh, we'll get some more vampire talk down the road with with all of Mignola's uh, vampire lore. Some feedback on the Whittier legacy. I posted and tagged Skeleton Crew telling them how much we want our Whittier medallion (laughs) replica. Day Sequoia on Instagram said, yes, queen. Uh. (laughs) Some feedback on the Bride of Hell. Boy, we had a lot of feedback for this story. Oh, okay. Um, Really elicited a lot of conversation. Alex Aronowitz said, true story, my father-in-law is also a knight of the Order of Demolay. I went to the ceremony. Fun time, question mark. Uh, Bunch of lovely nerds. And so I asked him, I said, that's so awesome. How was it? And he said, it was fascinating, so nerdy and wonderful. Her dad is 65 and most of the other members were younger than me. So it was pretty cool, generational, interesting to watch all the rituals. That's fun. That's very interesting. I'm I'm a little more interested in it because I remember, uh, yeah, no, I don't know. I just I remember wearing the robes, yeah. which are just glorified capes. They were so much fun. <laughs> Good times. <sighs> and he also said about the Bride of Hell, uh, more Corbin, super sweet. Bride of Hell is such a great story. I feel very strongly about that one. Sohan Sarag on Instagram said, just reread this yesterday. Corbin's depiction of the demon is just fantastic. I posted like little comparisons to right, what yeah. Asmodeus yeah. has looked like in different works. And Tom Hardman, he really liked the Dictionnaire Infernal uh-huh. version. And he said, those demons are so metal. Has anyone ever done Hellboy in that style? Oh, yeah. that would be interesting. That, yeah, I started thinking about that, too. I was like, man, that'd be super slick to see yeah, that. Yeah, everyone's doing Inktober right now. I would love to see that. Well, Somebody would... should do something like that. Well, I think he's talking about like an like in the etching style. Like a Dictionnaire Infernal That's, version those of are Hellboy. Etch- those are etchings. Yeah, but I mean, someone could just draw it. Too. No, 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 no. It would be really cool to see like a <laughs> copper plate etching. Well, I, you know, the at the studio, I could... I could do that at the studio there's um you know there's all the equipment that you need for copper plate etchings and things like that over there that might be really interesting to do i'm not going to be able to stop thinking about this now Uh, it got me to thinking about like hellboy in different kinds of styles like you imagine hellboy in like medieval art style or you know old ancient egyptian art or you know even cave painting style like what would hellboy look like in all those different (laughs) forms tom hardman also said on bride of hell He's in favor of renaming it to Rock Me Asmodeus. <laughs> That's not bad. Okay, so I got to say about that, I tried to hit like or like laugh on that comment, but my phone would just not uh, let yeah. it go. Sometimes I was just like, what that. the fuck, man? It does that to me too. I'm all about Rock Me Asmodeus. Yeah, for sure. That's I actually did adorable. think of that when we were reading that. 
Kevin Alford said, I feel like the Bright of Hell is over of the more sad Hellboy stories. Yeah. I think the monologue of Asmodeus was very sympathetic, mm. and I love the spotlight on Templar hypocrisy. Yeah. yeah. Sure. I mean, I agree with all of that for sure. Jen Nikla said, Bright of Hell for me was a story where something changed in Mike's narrative in a good way. Maybe I was just blind, but this was the first time demons and servants of the Ogdru Jihad weren't just the evil guys, but people. People with their own complex lives that have a more varied look at the dragon and powers of demons. And Asmodeus is a good example how somebody can change from demon lord to sphinx to loving husband, while not needing to change what he is. He was a demon and he got accepted and lived the life, or like you said... That's how he saw it. It's a very complex story, even if the St. Hagen Knights look more like the bad guys, but they tried to change. Sure, yeah. Really thought-provoking yeah. stuff. Drew Campbell really loved Danielle's occult demonology lesson. <laughs> That's a topic I've been interested in for a long time, but just have never taken the time to really dive into it. I do have a book called A Dictionary of Angels, including The Fallen Angels by Gustav Davidson, which mm. I picked up after reading that Neil Gaiman used it as a reference in writing Sandman. It's really cool and cites the sources for its information, which include all the works Danielle mentioned and many more. Interesting. But being a dictionary, it's kind of a dry read. <laughs> but it's a great reference, and for a lot of the entries, it gives really good information on the historical background of the mythology but I really need to get some of that source material. That's very cool. And yeah, that, that might be useful for this particular book club. Yeah. Um, I have, <laughs> I've got so many books on my shelf that talk about various um, folklores and mythologies and different ancient spiritual beliefs and things like that and different, you know, cultural, religious, things like that. And so I'm, that's something that I'm kind of fascinated with too. And so it's always really... Uh, interesting to hear another person's take on that and, and what they've discovered and things like that so yeah keep that coming for sure yeah at susan of texas on twitter shared the book and the devil will drag you under a book by jack l chalker it's a comic fantasy by american writer jack chalker involving an alcoholic demon named asmodeus mogart and two humans he summons to collect the pieces of a mystic artifact that the demon requires to save Earth from an asteroid on a collision course. And she said it was a really good book. And it was on that post where I was talking about the different versions of Asmodeus. And oh, she was okay. like, here's another version, you know, from, from that book. And it looked pretty cool. I love that all the actually different... actually sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I love all the different, you know, book club members coming in with the stuff that they yeah. are referencing yeah. that made them think of this or that. And that's really cool. That's, that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. Some feedback on Buster Oakley Gets His Wish. I posted this on our socials, but Jerry pointed out that the alien from Seed of Destruction and Conqueror Worm shows up in Buster Oakley trapped in one of those pods in the background. I can't believe we missed that we detail totally last week. We totally missed that, yeah. missed it, but when I saw it, I was like, damn. <laughs> Especially because I've been kind of like obsessing over that Trying guy. To, yeah. Like, oh, what's this guy? That's neat. And then Jerry also added, are they really aliens? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, you never know. Yeah. You never know what's going on. Jan Nikla said, Buster Oakley is just plain fun, and for me, it's canon. Hellboy's world is very is a very strange world, and those wild creepers fit in just right. It shows that this universe is bigger than Earth, that there is more between heaven and Earth than we think. Mm. Good ratio, even if that consists of perverted aliens with an obsession for slicing cows into two halves. Mm. Weird buggers. In my old head canon, they did it just for fun because this is humor on their world. Oh, gross. Ross Radke said, since you guys mentioned the connection to the secret name of God, Jewish mysticism, and mathematics, oh, yeah. you have to watch Aronofsky's Pie. 
which is his most I, I avant-garde film brought that by far. Up. I actually own that movie. Yeah. I actually, you know what? I almost brought that up, but I didn't want to go off onto a huge long tangent right. about the movie Pie on because I I figured y'all would be like, oh, why is she going off on this tangent about Pie, dude? I'm right there with you. I totally <laughs> almost brought that up. He also mentioned, I think we've talked about it uh, before on, a, on earlier podcasts, but Nolan did the Hellboy logo. When I saw that, I was like, oh yeah, that's right, but that's I had guy. forgotten about it. Yeah, and Nolan himself commented on our discussion on Twitter. That was really nice yeah. to see. That was really amazing. <laughs> yeah, we were like, whoa, we were all excited. <laughs> we were like, man, he listened to it. So, well, that's yeah. the, you know, that's that's the thing about the internet. It can be used for great evil or it can be used to bring people together. Yeah. And so, I think that's <laughs> that's really nice that, you know, he we made that uh connection with one of the one of the artists. That's yeah. really neat. Yeah. Great, great discussion. And now we're going to go ahead and move on to our book club for the week. We're going to talk about Hollow Earth. This is BPRD Hollow Earth. Story by Mike Mignola, Christopher Golden, and Tom Snigoski. Pencils by Ryan Sook. Inks by Ryan Sook and Curtis Arnold. Colors by Dave Stewart. And letters by Clem Robbins. Some familiar names in there. Yeah, we do have some familiar names. And the story was published as a three-issue miniseries in January, April, and July of 2002. So just to give us a little bit of setup, the events of this are taking place while Hellboy is... uh, in the third wish so when hellboy's in the he's the bog has him and all that stuff according to the timeline right. uh print that came out at new york city comic-con cool that's where this is happening we open on the ural mountains above the arctic circle the ural mountains are simply the urals are a mountain range that runs approximately from north to south through western russia from the coast of the arctic ocean to the ural river and northwestern kazakhstan is it earl or ural I don't know. What did I say? Ural. I'm not sure what it is either. I don't know if it's Ural. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. uh, They'll let us know if I said it wrong. Yeah, if it's Ural or (laughs) Ural, I'm not really sure, but that's, um, you know. And we open, we kind of see the mountains, and we see this monastery in the distance, and we see Liz Sherman. We haven't seen her in a while. I think the last time we saw her was at the end of Almost Colossus, where she was zapped back to life, and then she woke up and she was like, weird. Yeah. And I think that's the last time that we've seen her. It's good to see her. She approaches a temple and talks to a monk. I need your help. Is this Agartha? The monk says, Agartha is a dream. And Liz despairs. It can't be. Oh, God. She holds her head in her hands, and the monk touches her shoulder. Do not despair, child. That dream lives here. And the monk, you know, he was first kind of this bald old man, and then when he tells Liz that, he's like this young guy with long hair. And he opens the doors, and um, light beams from inside, and Liz sees a figure within. Well, it's interesting because I actually think that that might be one of the kind of mood shots that we've gotten used to from Mike Mignola's work. Mm-hmm. And I think that this, this artist, um, Ryan Sook did the pencils and some of the inks. I think yeah. he just said it was, he's sort of taken a little bit of that flavor. He's got the little vignette panel, a little window here. He's got the kind of those really strong blacks, the fine line work and, yeah. and, and kind of that relief work. And that, I, I think that that might be sort of a stylistic choice. It's, but um, I really like it. It's very, you know, it's familiar, but still his own, his own thing, which I like. Yeah, I was going to comment on this a little bit later, but uh, the artwork uh, made me think that's like very reminiscent of Mignola's yeah, style, Mignola-esque, and maybe. Um, it made me think of like when Steve Ditko 
left Spider-Man and John Romita started drawing, Stan Lee was like, I want you to try to draw this in Ditko style so people won't be jarred. And he kind of slowly let it morph into um, right. Romita style. So that's what it made me think of. Yeah. But then also I got to think, uh, was this monk, was that the way the monk plays a practical joke on somebody? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's sort of a litmus test of yeah. like, if you can see him in this form, it's sort uh, of, I don't know, but yeah. I have no idea. But no, it's, you know, obviously I'm not trying to say that he's copying my Reynolds style or anything like that. I think that it is um, reminiscent, like you were saying, Aubrey. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's sort of um, got that flavor to it, but it's obviously his own style. It's there. There are differences, but it is... I am very much reminded just by some of the shapes of things and the pacing of things and the yeah you know it's 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 very I like it I guess is what I'm trying to say <laughs> oh yeah no I mean and it's like just like this this layout of the mountain like right here in the beginning yeah. is like if if I didn't care enough to know who the artists were I might mistake it for he's got yeah. some very strong blacks and he's not afraid of this no. style of shading and I really like it I think it's good yeah. Liz tells the monk that she's never been good at asking for help, and she explains that she cannot control her fire. The monk tells her, you have sought to enslave this thing. You have to make peace with it. You have to make peace with yourself, Elizabeth Sherman. You did well to come here. And Liz enters the doors, and we learn that this occurred two years ago. It's exciting. Now we are at the BPRD headquarters in Fairfield, Connecticut, and we get a little descriptor established in 1944 by the late Trevor Broom. It's an international collective in response to Nazi and later Soviet occult experiments. Its function in the present is to monitor, investigate, and contain supernatural events worldwide. Kate Corrigan, we see her again. She Kate? Co- yeah, Sorry. she, she <laughs> coordinates. Back, Kate. <laughs> I know, I love me some Kate, and she coordinates some interesting sounding cases and she's informed that the new guy is here this is very like x-files yeah opening here that we're getting this is a very like just talking very nonchalantly about some really fucked up shit and i love it <laughs> it's my bread and butter i dig that and kate meets with a mr kraus in the waiting room and it kind of looks like broom's library it's got all the kind of relics in the background i really love the way that sook puts all those little details in there yeah and Kraus says to call him Johan. Johan, I'm so excited to get to this character. I've been really looking forward to this. Yeah, and I like how he says, if we are meant to be colleagues, the formality is not necessary. So, she, yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I just noticed something I didn't notice in my first read-through. Like, when you look at him from kind of the back here, you can see his uh, glasses are taped to his They're head. taped on, oh, yeah. That's a cute little detail. Really that's great. Cute. Kate tells Johan that he will live on the premises and won't have to go out in public. And explains the amenities available at the BPRD. And Johan looks at a picture of Hellboy on the wall. And he asks, what of the other unique field agents? I am grateful for what the Bureau has done for me. But I have much curiosity about about these others. This Hellboy, for instance. When am I to meet him? So they're kind of establishing like that Johan is maybe hoping to meet other people who don't quite fit in, who are a little bit weird, who are kind of, you know, experiencing a little bit of rejection from society. He has to hide. He has to wear this disguise. He seems like he's looking forward to meeting Hellboy. Hellboy seems to be almost like a lightning rod. Like when you're, when you're with him, it's, it, it's like you're part of a family. You're part of a group of people who take care of each other, who aren't rejected, who are just as weird as, you know. And so I think that that's an interesting way to open up the team here. We're, we're getting members, and then a slight technical note that is 
completely off topic. When they're walking through the hallway, this little panel in the lower left-hand corner, the, that little shot. Again, I, I have to point out like the way that the figures are very small. It's there. There aren't you know painstakingly drawn details. It's just you get an impression of shapes, like the legs oh, are just yeah, kind of yeah. shapes and. I like it. I, I think it's a good, yeah. impre- almost impressionistic, you know what they're doing. They're walking down a hallway, but yeah. it's just the legs are just like a little line and it's, yeah. just a, it's a brush stroke maybe. And I think that that's, that's really interesting. He's sort of taken a, we're, we're, we're used to that. We're f- that's familiar to us right. in, in these yeah. t- stories. So I think that that was really, um, that's, it, that stuck out to me. It's like a nice way to um, convey depth of the yeah. image. Yeah. Uh, Without uh, too much detail. Yeah, yeah and we're, yeah. we're used to seeing that, some of that with Mike Mignola's work. And I'm not trying to compare these two artists like he's trying to... Obviously, he has his own style and he's a great artist in his own right. And I'm not trying to say that he's copying or anything like that. I just think it's... um That really stuck out to me. I was, uh, I was like, oh, I've seen similar yeah. things to that in these stories. So that's neat. And also going back to um, what you were saying about like him wanting to meet Hellboy, uh, it got me to thinking that through a lot of the stories that we've read you know and they've taken place over the years you'll see people like 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 in buster oakley last week when they're like hey none of your alien crap blah 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 yeah. and they're like oh it's you hellboy and yeah. then like, other people are like oh it's you hellboy and so it's like hellboy is um he's different from everybody else but he's become accepted yeah. in the world and so he's insisted upon it yeah and, and that's something that i think it's attractive well, to other people who are yeah, looking for yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah so. that's a really good point. The waitress doesn't even bat an eye on him on Sullivan's, ha- <laughs> Sullivan's reward where she pours him the coffee. Yeah. No, that's a good yeah. point, Aubrey. So when Johan mentions Hellboy, Kate's face kind of says it all. I wish I knew. Hellboy has. He's actually, well. And then we get this flashback from Conqueror Worm. And after all we've read in The Third Wish, The Island, and Into the Silent Sea, this flashback seems very poignant. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Coming back to this. Yeah. He's like, I quit. And then she comes back and she's like, he's taken a leave of absence. Right. Which is a very, that's a very diplomatic way of saying that. Right. Yeah. It's a good. <laughs> it's also, I feel like it's kind of her being hopeful that Hellboy will Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. She doesn't yeah. want to say he's gone. She wants to leave that open ended, yeah. which is because, like, if you yeah. say when you say something out loud, it's like you're accepting uh, what it really is. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Wow, that is an interesting. Yeah, look into her, who she is. Her, yeah. she's yeah. a very hopeful person. That's interesting, Aubrey. Yeah, and I like the way that Sook recreates this scene also um, from the end of Conquer Worm. I, I I would like to go back and kind of compare the two. The co- I mean, and obviously Dave Stewart yeah. is amazing. He oh, yeah. even gives that a whole other mood with the color there. And it's it's clear that it's a flashback without it being like, you know, overly done. It's yeah. a very subtle thing that he did. Manning pugs his head out of his office to greet Johan, and he asks Kate to see him. And for the first time, we reveal Johan, and we see he's got this clear bubble head and the breathing hole, that so little apparatus. Cute. Yeah, as he takes his hat off. I think he's precious. Manning and Kate talk. Manning fears that Abe is quitting and taking Roger with him. Manning says that after the events of Conqueror Worm, they don't trust the Bureau anymore. And he says to Kate that he does care about the agents, but there's more to that. And Kate says, I know, they're status symbols. Having them on our payroll makes us look good. I know you really do care, Tom, but if you want them to stick around, you might want to shut up about the other stuff and treat them like people, not pets. She really stands up for them. She really says to her superior, you might want to shut up about that. <laughs> and I, I'm i like, wow, damn. Oh, uh, totally agree. Yeah. Uh, but she also says, like, look good against the competition. 
who's the competition? I wonder, yeah, I wonder what that is. And um, she really establishes herself as a character. They really do a good job in these first couple pages. Courageous and brave and loyal and sweet and just, uh, how can you not love her? I mean, she's like the epitome of like a good boss type person. She's standing up for her people and she's not afraid to say to her superiors, stop treating my people like shit. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And she really has a connection with these people and- like you were saying, Aubrey, mm-hmm. just now that she doesn't want to believe that Hellboy is gone for yeah. She wants to believe that he's might be coming back. And so that's something that she's very, mm-hmm. yeah, I really like her. Back at Agartha, it's two years later, and we see that Liz has much more control of her fire. She sits on a rug in the middle of her room, and she makes shapes with the fire. These panels with her hands, where she's doing things with her hands, they look very much like uh, mudras. And that's um, just very quickly. Oh, wow. Those are uh, hand gestures, you know, that have obviously their hand gestures. But in Hinduism or Buddhism and even some classical, you know, Indian dancing, these hand gestures have special meanings and they serve like a symbolic purpose. And they're used in spiritual practices, various like yogas and meditations and things like that. Obviously, I'm talking about this in a very general sense because I don't want to be disrespectful to any one specific Religion, this is used in a number of different ways, and there's a lot of, you know, I I encourage anyone listening to kind of go out and do their own research about it and read some books, talk to people about it, look at Wikipedia, look at some videos, look at some stuff online about it, because you can get a lot of information about that in various places. But yeah, they they look like mudras to me, and there's... um, you know, it's used in dancing, it's used in yoga, it's used in a lot of different nice. things. And so that's those uh, hand symbols may or may not be saying something. And I, I mean, look at her surroundings. You know, she is in a temple. She's yeah. somewhere, you know, she's got an orange robe on. She's sitting down on a mat. She looks like she's wor- working hard on something. She really looks like she's working. And so that's, um, I'm just curious about that. If anyone yeah. has any further insight into that, I would be curious to to hear that, to know yeah. about that. So, yeah. And she hears a loud rumbling, so she runs out of her room into the hallway, and she lights up the hall using her powers. Which is very cool. This is a really good scene. I love that panel where she's holding her hand up. Like, you you don't get all of the very fine details in her fingers because it's so illuminated, but the shape of her hand says it all, and then the the shading, the rest of it is just so... It's just a very powerful scene and liz hears the monks talking heka emin ra black goddess neb augaroth such was her profaning of the temple that it brought forth an evil wind and thoth on his throne was brought low by it even unto death and his 42 great books were passed down to lesser kings who used them badly fashioning a new race to toil in the earth here is the crime to repent the sins of the watchers for wasn't it they who brought out of the slime the rebel serpent Ogdru Jahad, which spawned 369 abominations into the sea, and so that new race of man would one day rise up against its masters? Woe to them, for out of that stunted tribe will come a new king of fear, hastening the arrival of the charnel house of time. So, holy shit, just Intense a couple pages stuff, yeah. into this, yeah. we're already getting all those mythology threads yeah. that we just started to uncover in Hellboy. So he's referring to a lot of the legends that we've heard from in the island. There we learn that the black goddess seduced Thoth and caused the decline of Hyperborea, the golden people. We learn that Thoth books were passed down to the new race who were trying to recreate the sin of the Watchers. 
and the sin of the watchers was also depicted in the island remember that one of the watchers dared to draw fire from the air and created the ogre jihad that once imbued with darkness created the 369 ogre so that new race would rise up against his masters so does that mean Om nom 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 nom. Give me all of this. I want all of this. So does this mean how the Watchers had to fight the Ogdruhem, or is this saying the Ogdruhem would somehow rise up against the humans? I was trying to kind of figure them out. And then it says, Woe to them, out of the stunted tribe will come a new king of fear. So the people that have Thoth's books may be trying to recreate the sin of the Watchers, but will instead create a new king of fear. And it it introduces another idea. Who all has this information? Because in the island we were told hey, this is the only guy that has this information, right, yeah. and now we're finding out these fucking guys know all about this now, too. They have the books. They have this shit. Right. Also, just a little uh, aesthetic detail, this guy, this dude here, is floating cross-legged over this oh, giant yeah, scroll. Oh, you're right. Oh, yeah, I was going to mention so, that. So, that's a thing. He's got, he's maybe formidable, maybe powerful. The way that he kind of waves Liz away, kind of dismiss dismissive, like oh you don't need to worry about this you you know whatever but like to from one powerful person to another right shouldn't y'all be putting your heads together on this I yeah he said she says it didn't feel like normal geology and he says there are other sciences than geology child the matter will be dealt with yeah but so, like yeah well did, don't you know that she's got this huge fucking power that she can't even control like you're teaching her how to do it i mean he's floating above a scroll she's making fire with her hands Y'all need to put y'all's heads together and figure this shit out because it seems intense from where I'm sitting. Well, it could be that he just thinks that she still needs to learn more. To uh, right, but uh, going back to what you were saying about um, who has this information about, like you know, the yeah. books and all that kind of um, information, it still seems like it might be small because, like, it took. It well, seems yeah. like it took Liz a while to get there, and then this place seems kind of like a legend kind of place. And uh, Yeah, it's and, very remote. Obviously, not yeah. everyone's going so, to I this mean, monastery. Maybe they're the only other guys that have I don't know. Yeah, but that's, that's but, it is interesting. Uh, it does it does raise a good question. Who all does know yeah. this, who knows this? this right. information? It's very yeah. secret, weird stuff. So, yeah, who knows it? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the number is going to be very small. It might just be these guys, too. But, right. I, I, yeah. But it is interesting. I don't know. Back at the BPRD, Kate visits Abe's room. He was listening to headphones, and there's also like a big tank in the back of his room. I, I guess that's where he that, sleeps. I noticed that little tank in there. Yeah. And cool. Kate tells Abe that she's returning a book that she just couldn't get into. You didn't like it, Abe asks. Just seemed kind of implausible, Kate responds. Implausible? That's almost funny, Abe says. Abe quickly changes the subject to Manning. He knows Manning sent Kate to talk to him. I just, just to jump in really quick, I love the way uh, Ryan Sook has Abe reaching over to pause his music. He's taking off his headphones. Yeah. You know, it's it's a fluid motion. He's taking off his headphones. He's reaching over to stop the music to address Kate. You know, he's in the middle of, you can tell he's just put his book down to greet her. He, yeah. It's there in his lap. It's such a natural seeing this natural body language it really tells a story and it it might be mundane on the surface but it's important that we see these behaviors it brings us closer to these characters it's excellent storytelling i think that it's very all the little details are very yeah. nice i also like that he's listening it looks like out of a boom box uh, for oh, yeah, all of our yeah. younger listeners <laughs> for all of our younger listeners a boom box is how we used to listen to music back in the 90s well you yeah. see another shot of it later on page yeah. um i'm got the omnibus so it's page 24 for me but um 
That's a CD player. Yeah, it's a little. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's very. I wonder if like the artist had one of those in his studio. He just like drew it. I yeah. don't know. But anyway, sorry to keep derailing it for That's little okay. mundane things like that. But it just struck me as no, that, it's good. That stuck out to me. We're friends, Kate. I'm gonna miss you, but we're not so close that you make it a habit of dropping by my quarters unless it's business. Mm. And Abe asks about the new guy, Johan. And Kate tells his origin. Johan was a medium who happened to be out of his body during the Chengdu disaster. Johan's body was toasted and his ectoplasmic projection had nothing to return to. The Chengdu disaster is a fictional event and we might learn more about that a little later. Somehow Johan managed to hold himself together until the BPRD could make a suit for him. He's not dead, he just doesn't have a body anymore. There's this uh, shot in the background of him in that tube. It kind of reminds me of the tube that Abe's in later, mm, yeah. and then also Roger. They kind of had him on a different, on a similar setup on Abe Sapien versus Science. Yeah, his old life is gone, but he's still a great medium, and he's got a good general knowledge of the paranormal. I think he'll make a good home here. Don't leave, Abe. I like how she just goes right into don't that. Leave, you know, yeah. she just like she's saying all this, and they don't even—they're not even looking at each other. There's a lot of expression there. He's kind of just looking at his boombox. She's got her back turned to him. And he just kind of looks down. So, you know, it just kind of creates that. It's very, yeah. yeah that, and yeah. like it just goes back to Kate really. She's trying to keep everyone together. Yeah. She, she, she thinks it'll be good to keep everyone together. But, you know, Abe has some good points about why he doesn't want to stay. And I think it's just a very wonderful character work here. Just a little detail. This, oh, yeah. Just a little detail. This statue is forming mudras with its hands. Yeah. So this, this statue, whatever the statue is, I'm sure... Somebody from a Buddhist or maybe a Hindu religion would be able to point out who this statue is or what, the, you know, but or maybe more familiar with that. I, I don't want to be offensive in my, you know, I don't have enough knowledge, of, but it's these these hands are definitely forming mudras. So. I also like this kind of interaction between Abe and Kate because it kind of shows the aftermath of Hellboy leaving and he kind of really yeah. was sort of like a uh, it kind of shows that he really kind of was like a, a little bit of like the glue that held these guys together yeah, yeah. and um, you know also like they put a mom in front of her why wouldn't why would they want to stay right exactly sure exactly they, yeah and that's something that you know Abe is Abe is rightfully angry about that and maybe even scared he's like hey like they really don't fucking care about us. They will put bombs inside of us. That's fucked up. They don't see us as fully human, maybe, or whatever it is, but it's dangerous, and or it's just fucking offensive. I don't like that. Yeah. Who would? You know, and so, but she's trying to be like, well, but think about it this way, and think about that way. She's yeah. really just trying to keep them together because she feels like the, the quote-unquote maybe greater good is they're a team, they're a family, you know, and together they're stronger, but separated they wouldn't feel that acceptance anywhere else or something right. i don't know right. so that's it's an interesting yeah but yeah. it's a good insight into these characters and it is an important conversation like hellboy's gone what are they gonna do and so right that's and yeah. abe also says that he misses liz and so you remember in wake the devil she referred to that she quits a lot she yeah. always quits and she comes back <laughs> yeah. so he says that he misses her too and um Kate kind of pleads, she says, they just lost Hellboy. They sure as hell don't want to lose you guys. So she kind of puts it like that. Like, look, they're not going to do any of that stuff. Yeah, that thing was Roger was bad, but just think about it, okay? Well, he says, Roger and I feel alone. Right. And so that's, she's trying to make the case like, this is, you know, you're better off here. And he's trying to make the case like, well, maybe we're not. Later that night, Abe is packing up some books and smoke starts rising from one of the books. And then a flame 
and then the flame kind of turns into Liz and it calls out to him. <clears throat> I like the way that the flame fire effect also says a Yeah. It's like you can it's like she's the starting oh, yeah. to come through in the fire. That's interesting. I, I I like the detail of how many books he's got. I feel bad that he's got to move so many books. Yeah, he's got a lot of books. You know, I uh, earlier I think when we talked about the first Hellboy movie, I was like they kind of tried to squish Abe and Kate because uh, yeah. Abe's like the Kate is like the researcher. Kate. But now I see here Abe is a lot of the he does a lot of research. He's the, too. Yeah, yeah, he's the um, he's the oh I was trying to he's the Giles. Maybe. Yeah, so. I had to now I have to take that comment back. Well, um, I mean, and he probably just loves to read. You know, he's like, you know, some people just love books. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, but it's it's another just little insight yeah. that we're not straight. There, you know, a lot of exposition and sometimes when you are reading something will be like, well, you know how much I love reading in books. Yes, I know how much you love reading in books. I see all of the books that you are reading. Look at all the books he has. Jeez. But it's like here it's just... He's doing something. It's it, it it's good storytelling. It's just he's packing up all his books and then action happens. Right. So it's it's just very much very natural in the story. You get these insights into these characters just from the story itself. It's not shoved. There's no exposition being shoved down your throat. Yeah, it's very, and, and it's like the books don't have like you don't see little titles written on them. They're just kind of plain yeah. Looking. You you get to know these characters yeah. through their actions, not through like crappy you are dialogue. By books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. This vision of Liz that appears, it calls out to Abe. It's so dark down here, Abe. Dark, and I'm so, so cold. You have to come and get me. And the sprinkler system kicks in, and the flame vision disappears. Holy mackerel, Liz, Abe says, and the agents rush in with fire extinguishers. They ask Mr. Sapien if he's all right, and he just says, just a little wet. I gotta say, I, I I really like Abe's humor right there coming through there. You know, yeah. ho- holy mackerel and just a little wet. Yeah. yeah. He's got that kind of like dry wit to him. He's awesome. Kate rushes in. What the hell's going on here, Abe? Abe tells Kate what he witnessed, and he says he doesn't know where to start looking for her. And Kate says that the Bureau has kept tabs on Liz since she left. And Abe is offended by that. He's, he, he's offended that they weren't told. And Kate says Liz wanted to be left alone. And they're just keeping tabs like they would anyone who had that kind of power. She went looking for peace of mind. We figured if she found it, she would come back. If not, then maybe she's too volatile to have around. You want to know why I want out of here? That's it right there, Abe says. I don't need anyone telling me my friends are too volatile to have around. And Kate says, fair enough, but she quickly redirects. Maybe we should talk about it on our way out of here. Fine by me, Abe says, but don't think you're going to change my mind. Wouldn't dream of it, Kate responds. And Abe's a little salty here. He's kind of like, you know, he's kind of pouting a little bit. And It's interesting that she said that they keep tabs, they're keeping tabs on Liz, so they probably have tabs on Hellboy. They probably know that he's all like in Africa or maybe floating around in the ocean. Right. We cut to the helicopter. And they're looking for Agartha. They're looking at a, a picture of Agartha, and we see Abe and Roger and Kate and Johan all in the helicopter. I like the little logo in the upper left-hand corner of this um, dossier that they're oh, looking yeah. at. Oh, yeah. They've got their little letterhead. That's cool, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And inside, Abe asks, who are these guys, monks? They claim to be direct descendants of the first humans and therefore are more spiritually connected to the pre-human super race that no longer exists in the Earth dimension. <laughs> and Abe and Roger just kind of look at her. There's a beat. And she's like, yeah, I know, but at least they're not hurting anybody. I, I just love that look on their face. It's almost like they're just saying, 
Right. It's yeah. a good use of that beat, yeah. and a lot of times it it could be overdone, but I think here it's really well used. Mm-hmm. It's 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 effective. It's funny. Yeah, and Kate is just great. I love how she's middle ground about everything. Yeah, everything. She's just trying to keep yeah. the peace. It's, I feel like I relate a lot to her. We deal with <laughs> we deal with a lot of we deal with a lot of really dark and moody stuff in these stories, and it's nice to just every once in a while get a little bit of that lighthearted kind of humor. And so I. I Again, just a lot of really good character work. Oh yeah, and I think they, uh, I appreciate the humor in it because they are dealing with this really dark subject matter. Yeah. And then the yeah. humor, but the humor is not like slapsticky. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's like good. it just feels like a nice little something. It's character driven. It's people yeah. driven. It's it, funny. Yeah, we get a nice little beat here as they all exit the helicopter. Johan hesitates coming out. Perhaps I ought to wait here, my friends. I've only begun my training. I feel my inexperience puts you in danger. And Roger says, training? What training? And Abe's just like, you'll do fine, Johan. This is a great team. Yeah. This is yeah. a great team. I just kept I just kept thinking that on this page is these four people are interesting. I want to go on this journey with them. I'm excited. Yeah, and we've seen Roger. They were doing experiments on him, and Hellboy was just like, let's just take him out. So, I yeah. mean, yeah, you know. No, but um, that's a good point. I Yeah, I didn't think about that. I like that. The team enters the temple and they find a grisly scene. All the monks are dead and the ground is cracked. Roger says, hey, isn't he supposed to be able to talk to ghosts? And Johan says he can touch the dead, even read them in a way. It is most unpleasant. And he kind of, um, he lets his ectoplasm out of his gloves to kind of examine these monks. And we get some good Mignola shapes too with with the ectoplasm. And Johan says uh, that they're all dead, but there is something. And Abe finds Liz. She has no pulse. She's not breathing, but still warm. Johan uses his powers on Liz. No, not dead. How to say it? She is simply gone. Her shell is empty. Oh, crap. Not again. And she looks at Roger. Kate looks at Roger. She's like, sorry. And he's like, that's all right. And he's kind of like looking down at the ground. (laughs) You know, um, this scene just before the panels, just before where... Abe is picking Liz up and holding her and Roger's coming in to the side and he's looking at her. Just the anguish on his face yeah. is so, you know, this, I, I, I love this artist. I really do. I think that he is able to communicate these facial expressions with just such, um, there, I don't want to call them simple lines because I know that his, his work is work and it right. takes work to achieve what he's doing. And it's obvious, I'm not saying it's simple. I'm just saying it's, it just is very, um, well communicated and but this panel reminds me of something and i cannot put my finger on oh yeah it. a it famous does. work of art it does kind of yeah it's I was almost arranged in a classical i can't put my finger on it i'm not saying that he purposefully would have arranged this scene in that way but i just am it's reminiscent of something painting is that i'm never thinking of the know. name of the painting i'm sorry anyway i just wanted to point out this seems like the third time that somebody has taken over Liz like yeah. Ras- Rasputin and um, uh, Seed, of Seed, Seed of Destruction and then Roger um, yeah. when we first meet him and now this it's kind of like what the hell yeah. well, she's very powerful and yeah. so she's people are coming after her like they want that and so yeah. I think that's trying a, to steal her power it's yeah. a good you know uh, way to start the story that she's bringing that up herself she's trying to take responsibility for that she's like look man I keep getting possessed by these demons and these witches and warlocks and that they're trying to use my power to yeah, do all this fucked up shit. I need to be able to... It's like they keep trying to turn her into a battery of some sort. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so she wants to be able to control it and she wants to be able to 
stop people. Yeah, she wants to be in control of that. And so she's, this is her best effort at trying to do that is coming to this place and, and doing that. And look what it got her. You know, they, yeah. all these monks were slain and she's still, you know, being being used in this way. It's really scary. This is really, all the, all of this conversation that y'all are having right now is going to pay off. Okay. Yeah, I'm telling you <laughs> okay. <right now>. Okay. <laughs> Without well, saying too much. Maybe it was these guys, and Abe reveals a short, reddish, brown figure with ancient-looking weapons around him. And we see the BPRD agents, they deliver, like, this containment bag, and they put Liz in the bag. And Kate says, someone hollowed out Liz, her life force, they stole it. We have to get it back. Kate says she's worried that Liz's body may not be able to sustain itself. The clock might be ticking, and we don't even know it. Then we must behave as if the ticking has begun, Johan responds. And Johan says, the little dead man did not come alone. His comrades have departed. Maybe they came from down here, Roger says, looking down a large hole in the ground. Abe is is hesitant to go down into the hole, so Johan fills the little creature with his ectoplasm, and he's been dead no more than a day. His spirit is still here, still bound to dead flesh. And so Johan uses his powers, and he kind of, the spirit of this little creature kind of comes alive. Would you look at that, Abe says. Johan asks the creature what happened to Liz. We are creatures of the left hand, not children, but things, not men. The right hand, the keepers of secrets, they abandon us in the earth. They left us to the left hand, and that hand is a cruel and evil master. So when he came, he led us to throw down that hand, Now finally he has found the spark, and he will make a burning torch to scorch the world. And Roger and Abe, they kind of have a moment. (laughs) Abe's like, I guess that explains everything. You understood that? Roger says, no, I was being sarcastic, Abe says. (laughs) And Roger, that kind of is a reminder that Roger's still learning how to interact (laughs) with people. And that's a very cute, yeah, little little moment there. And uh, But yeah, this... um, and I like I like the syntax that Johan is using when he's talking. He's very matter of fact. He will rise to the occasion and just kind of yeah. yeah. But this the stuff that this little goblin dude is saying is real weird. It's really throwing me <laughs> off. <laughs> I don't really know what to make of that. He's talking about the right hand and the left hand. Is he talking about right hand of doom and the other hand? Yeah, I was wondering that from too. that statue or whatever. So that was... I think that um, remember that. The Watchers, yeah. they were all thrown down. Some came to the earth and became the first men. Yeah. And I think that... He raised some... his hand. Yeah. And that was the hand that tried to take the thing, the fire. Right. Yeah. And, and and some of the humans, some of these first humans, the Hyperboreans, the Golden People, some of them tried to be good, or, yeah. and then some of them were not. Yeah. And I think that those are the two hands. Uh-huh. One, one, one took the left-hand path, and one took the right-hand path. Uh-huh. Okay. And so the ones that took the... This guy says that they're under the left hand, so I think the Hyperboreans, the Golden People, they okay. took the right hand. Right. And these guys had cruel and evil masters sure. who were doing evil shit. Okay. That, interesting. That, that, that's what, no, what that's I take it as. Yeah. And hopefully our listeners can chime in. Yeah. I know that this some of this stuff gets explained later on, right. you know, obviously. Yeah. Totally. So what you're saying is you understood that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was being sarcastic. No, and just as a quick aside, I understand that in our in our culture um walking the left-hand path has a different meaning we're not trying to say that people who are whatever on the quote-unquote left-hand path are evil or doing evil shit 
or anything like that. So I know right. there's a lot of stigma and a lot of it's kind of a loaded phrase. So I just wanted to just put that out there really briefly. And Kate chimes in. She says that spark could be Liz. And she's like still trying to decipher this. You know what I mean? She's like taking this seriously, trying to pick up whatever clues possible. But Abe is just like, this isn't working too well. I hate to ask Roger, but since Johan has captured this thing's spirit, and spirit is kind of an energy, and you're able to suck up the energy, and he puts his hand on Roger's shoulder, and Roger's just like, I don't want to do it. Poor thing. But if there is a chance to learn something more, and so he, Roger reaches in and starts um, getting information from Poor this Poor guy. Thing. I feel bad for Roger. And uh, it's not pleasant for Roger. He says the creature's mind is all black and angry and old. They don't understand what Liz Sherman is, but they've taken her to him, the king of fear. They came up through there. It's far, but I think I can find a way. And Roger points into the hole. The king of fear. That's a very... Ominous. Intimidating title. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it is ominous. They have a scene here where Kate basically has to stay behind as field director. You know... Uh um, Um, director of field operations and so she has to stay behind in the helicopter in case they need anything or in case they need to check back and she's not really happy about that sometimes being the boss is you know you gotta do those those things Uh, i like how abe reminds her of that too he's like that's what it is being the boss yeah and so i love this shot of she's like how are you guys going to carry liz's body down there and he's like we'll manage and we kind of see roger putting it on johan is kind of helping him i I love all that as they rappel down kate says don't do anything stupid and and abe just says too late this yeah like you were saying it is really interesting um the uh ryan sook really took his time and was very careful. I wouldn't be surprised if this is all very accurate, all the repelling. Yeah. You really see all the equipment, yeah. you know, especially the shot of Abe in the next page, like all the all the repelling equipment looks pretty accurate and they're like hand motions and so that's um that's that's very very cool. I I appreciated that. I think that's neat. Not that I know anything about, yeah. you know, climbing or anything like that, but that's it looks it looks pretty good. It, it looks pretty legit. He took the time to do that, yeah. Yeah. As they go down, so what do you think of your second day on the job, Johan? Is everything as you thought it would be? I confess, my friend, that the work as a medium did not prepare me for this, Johan says, but I have already died once in a way. There is little of me to fear, save oblivion. And Roger chimes in. It's not always like this. Sometimes we play cards. I love that. I love that line. I made a note of that, too, in my notebook here. It's not always like this. Sometimes we play cards. Yeah. It's great. That was a wonderful line. I really think that uh, we all, at some point or another, have have felt that sentiment. Yeah. (laughs) And um, there is this one line in here. Abe says, looks like your ghost compass is working, Roger. I wonder, did Roger make that or... What you know? What, yeah, what what is that? Really that little that little device that Abe is holding. So I wonder what the story is behind that. Roger confesses that it isn't easy without Hellboy, and Johan asks Abe if he feels the same way, and Abe says that when Hellboy quit, it seemed like the end of something. He was the reason we all stayed. He was raised here. It was home to him, and as long as it was. He made it feel like home for us. Yeah, this is a very touching yeah, and we scene. get a we we get a great flashback, and it's very reminiscent of Abe Sapien versus Science. Yeah. And Abe recalls his terrifying first few days at the bureau, and he's in this cylindrical tank. His face is in just the lab. awful. Yeah, it's he looks really so scared bad for him, and you know his expression. I still have nightmares. It's very. And it says his first memories of the bureau are yeah. terrifying. Yeah. yeah, and he just looks like he's. He does look terrified, and it's just you really feel for him. And then 
you know, Hellboy comes in and... Yeah, and he says, this isn't right. And Abe remembers, weird that a guy who looked like that would be the one thing that didn't frighten me. Yeah. And I like to think that that's just because, like, Hellboy just kind of projects an aura of, hey, I'm not a bad guy. I may look right. like a bad guy, yeah. but I'm not a well, bad it, guy. Yeah. Well, it comes back to that uh, that thing uh, about telling a story with actions. He really tells that the story he's telling Abe while Abe is stuck in that tube is this is the only guy that was like actually fuck this I'm gonna walk right up to Abe and be the only person here who's helping him and not scaring the shit out of him yeah and Broom actually asks Hellboy to stand down but Hellboy says he's been in there for days cut the poor guy some slack and Hellboy climbs to the top of the tank and opens it. They're all like, oh, no, we can't interrupt these tests. Yeah. Get and, out of there. And Hellboy's like, you guys will just keep going until someone says that's enough. Well, guess what? That's enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, I like how he talks about he's, you know, I've been through these tests. Yeah. And, his empathy for, for. Yeah. He's like, I know what this guy is going through. Yeah. yeah. And absolutely. And, you know, his his empathy leads him to like like John just read that line, you know. You'll keep going until someone says that's enough. Well, guess what? That's enough. And he, I, that's so powerful yeah. that he's, he's the guy who always says, you know what? No more of this. And this I, and I love what he says to Abe as they're walking out. <laughs> Aww, Come on, yeah. pal. I'm going to get you a ham sandwich. Then you'll be just fine. Yeah. I mean, that's always Hellboy's hit. It's very simple. He, in any story that you look at, his dialogue is always very simple. Well, that's all or whatever yeah, like it's there very you there you go exactly and he's very come on the solution to this problem of you being terrified is to take you to have a nice sit down meal we're gonna go yeah. have a sandwich and you're gonna be just fine yeah it's very like that is yeah. warm and comforting sometimes yeah. that's all you need as a friend to come up walk up to you and be like hey man you'll be just fine let's let's go get a meal yeah. you'll be fine I mean, and that's you know. very yeah yeah and just a just a completely like I always do something that has nothing to do with this cu- discussion that we're talking about. This previous page where Hellboy is just walking up to the tank. His tail. Uh, Ryan Sook took the time uh, yeah. to make sure we know that that is a prehensile tail. Yeah, it's you know we don't <laughs> often get a lot of the tail because it's behind yeah, the trench coat that he wears, right. and he's usually wearing a big trench coat. And here it's just got the shorts on. So. I love that when he's opening the tank, just that shot of him opening it, and you see a lot of his tail in these yeah. in these two pages here, and that's um, I, I you know I just like that. Yeah, I love the shot of the two hands as Hellboy's yeah. pulling Abe out of the tank. That's my favorite. Yeah, absolutely, and he really makes a point of like I'm gonna take care of you. That's a very yeah, and great the fact moment. that yeah, and the fact that Abe is remembering that and is telling Roger about that and and everything is. It's, it's good, also yeah. kind of messed up that he seems to be floating around in a tank of fish totally carcasses. Totally fucked up. Yeah, I guess they're just throwing fish in there for him to eat or something. And they I just was yeah. leave him in too. there with the rotting yeah. stuff. Like they don't. Yeah. They did not give a shit. And so it really doesn't surprise me after this to be to know that without Hellboy there, Abe's like, well, fuck this, I'm out of here. Nobody else really cares about right. me, you know. And yeah. that's his history and his past with that bureau cannot be erased. That's that was his introduction. If it hadn't been for Hellboy, they would have kept treating him like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, they may have just kept treating him like that until he died. For sure. Yeah. Why would you stick around a place like that without this one person? You know what I mean? Like, why? And it's just like, you know, we see this. You know, they put a bomb in Roger. Yeah. And yeah. right after they were also doing experiments on AM2 that we learned in A versus Science. They yeah. did it to everyone. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where, like, why I wouldn't stick around a place like that. Hell no. Yeah. And I understand that Kate does love them and Kate does want to, them to stick together. But, you know... 
I can't blame them for feeling that way at this point in the story. Anyway. Yeah. Back with the team, they walk through a cave, and Johan says, Hellboy sounds like a good friend and leader. And now that he is gone, you are leader of the unit. I am? asks Abe. Where did you get that idea? And Johan says, well, it isn't me. <laughs> and Roger's like, it isn't me. They were going to blow me up. Aww. The team takes a rest, and they're suddenly ambushed by a horde of these little creatures. And they all have these like ancient-looking weapons. Oh, crap, live ones, Roger yells. And you know, Roger, he likes to, he's a lot of times takes things that other people say. So that, oh, crap, right there, I I feel like that's a Hellboy um, reference. Absolutely. It definitely does feel Hellboy-ish. Well, he's, yeah, he's still kind of discovering how to interact with the world and be a a people. So it's, yeah. And Johan struggles with one. These are different, more primitive than the dead warrior we found, he says. And he also says, asshole, stop biting my head. That's what that, <laughs> that's what I guess that German word, I looked that up. Oh, that's that's just, I just like the stop biting my head. Yeah. <laughs> and Roger has an idea to try to scare them away. So Johan makes a monster out of the ectoplasm. And it, sure enough, they all run away. And the team kind of discuss their bad odds. There were a bunch of those guys and they haven't seen the warrior ones yet. And um, I like this. Um, does Abe think that they ran away because he was holding the gun? or I don't know. Because it kind of seems like then the thing is behind him, and then he's like, well, okay then. Oh. But then later he's like, good plan, Roger. So I guess he did, he did know. And I love this little detail. Maybe that well, okay then was like, look, we took – we had we had two separate ideas for this situation. Right. And like, I guess that, oh, that yeah, definitely yeah, won. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. <laughs> and I love this detail how Johan's – body kind of collapses well, his, when the ectoplasm the suit that collapses the yeah. suit collapses yeah. yeah that's what i mean i kind of <laughs> like that detail and then it kind of blows back up as the yeah. ectoplasm goes back that's in really there interesting and I, and I like the way just the way he drew it all looking deflated and it just like yeah. just like yeah. a balloon just kind of like mm. i like that a lot well there's a lot of motion in yeah. the way that he draws yeah yeah roger notices a giant metal junk heap imagine that a junkyard at the center of the earth <laughs> And Roger touches the metal and says that the little creatures were created to maintain these machines as slaves. Roger says the first race of man was split. The followers of the right-hand path somehow moved beyond this world. The left hand remained to be killed off by their own slaves, led by the king of fear. So that kind of explains a little bit of that left-hand path, right-hand path. Kind of Um, as above, so below sort of a deal. Yeah, and the first race of man, the golden people, or Hyperboreans, were referenced in the island. Abe uncovers a piece of debris with a swastika on it. Damn, these guys were everywhere. (laughs) And we kind of see this big Nazi ship wreckage down there in in the middle of the earth. Nazi submarines. Roger says, <laughs> "I know they're still there." Roger says they came to enlist the aid of secret masters. Too bad for them, Abe says, shining his flashlight on a hole through one of the helmets. So obviously they went down there to try to enslave these people or get information from them, and they were all killed. Back at the helicopter, Kate tries to contact Manning to get another team out there, and she laments, "I hate being field director." Aww. She's just sitting in a cold helicopter yelling at people. They've all got their coffee and cigarettes. And she's just, yeah, she's just sitting in there yelling at people. It's, yeah, poor Kate. Back in the hollow earth, Johan examines the machines and says it looks like someone has been trying to repair them. And as the team walk through the caverns, we see this giant fossil 
of like this bird creature or some other animal. I was trying oh, to figure yeah. out what I that was. Know. It doesn't look like a bird. Or like, a, is it a dinosaur or something? Or no, it's it's definitely well, a weird. creature. It looks like it's got like a tusk, maybe or a horn or something. Well, birds were descendants of dinosaurs. Yeah. So. Oh right. Well, true. <laughs> but I mean, like they don't look like bird bones. I don't know. It's a y- weird monster. Maybe. Yeah. Johan asked Roger to elaborate on when he said they were going to blow him up. Oh, yes. Hellboy told them they could trust me, but they didn't believe him, Roger says. He is a good friend, Johan comments. The best, Aww. Roger says. And he, I love that little smile right there. Yeah. yeah. Well, Hel- I mean, Hellboy really did. I mean, the only reason Roger is still around is because of Hellboy. So that's, yeah, yeah. that's very sweet. And his little yeah. facial expression is very sweet. And Abe hears a rumble. He kind of puts his hand up, like, you know, um, to call the other guys back. And then they're ambushed by a bunch of these little warrior guys and this giant monster. I love this giant monster. I love this big old monster. (laughs) I just stared at this page for so long. I love this design. I think it's super fucking cute. I know it's supposed to be a giant scary monster, but I just love it. And I don't know. I, I I wonder what this page would be would go for i mean i just love this page and I, and I think in the issue this is the end of issue one i think that's where issue one ends and then we pick up on the issue two and we cut over to this machine it has like these glyphs on it from the outside did you see that like those bodies yeah. what is, what is that little detail i was trying to those might be like uh like lit i mean oh like other people other people that yeah. they are using as batteries like aubrey was saying earlier they're using Liz as a battery. I think those are the people that they just fucking Tried took before. in. Yeah. yeah, and as we zoom in on this machine, we see Liz. We she we see her face, and she looks anguished. And we zoom out to reveal this machine that she's trapped in. And it's got cords spreading out from under it, and they go to like a cauldron where there's burning light, and a double-tipped sword is pulled from the fire. At last, this figure says. And how do you describe him? Like you said, or I think earlier you said well, he, catfish person or something like that. He looks kind of like he's got catfish whiskers. Yeah. But he's got like, um, I don't know. Yeah. And his dialogue is in these little brackets. So it's like some ancient language. He, yeah, or he's some speaking foreign in language. some ancient language, but we can understand it because of the, we, it's being like subtitled it's for us. The universal translator. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And Liz, back in the machine, she's suffering in there, and she kind of has her own flashback here. A man in a protective suit brings her a tray of food, and she's being surveilled in this room. And young Liz tells him to stay away. It's not safe. Young Liz asks, how many people died? And she says, I'm sorry. So this is probably like after one of her big events, you know, um, in her origin. Yeah. She talks about how she killed her whole family. Awful. You know what I mean? And then um, she's saying stuff like, you know, I can't, you can't get burned just by talking to me. Why won't anyone just say something? Just talk to me. Yeah. She doesn't want to hurt anyone. She just, yeah. you know, she's very scared and alone. And Just like in the other scene, Hellboy goes barging in there. Hold on. You can't go in there. You don't have clearance, wait. and you need a fire suit. Well, they're being. <laughs> wait, hold a second. Wait, hold a second. I like how like she says, "Just talk to me," and she reaches out to try and just oh, even like yeah. put her hand on on his hand, and he freaks out, drops her tray of food on the floor. Can't yeah, even, like, drops put, all her food on the floor. Yeah, and then, and then runs, runs away. Away, and you're and he's wearing a protective suit. Such right. He's like, he, the guy's worried about him. He's like, "Oh, are you okay?" And the guy's like, "Yeah, I'm fine, but you you have to bring the next one in." And it's like. You guys are fucking dicks. And right. they would have kept being dicks if yeah. Hellboy hadn't have been like, hey, Fuck I'm going this. in there. But yeah, the whole thing about, 
you don't you don't have clearance. You need a fire suit. And Hellboy's like, you're kidding, right? right. <laughs> like it's fucking. Yeah, I just I just love that line. And I love how Hellboy comes in. This seems like something that you would do with a kid. Knock knock. Mind yeah, if I come in? Very sweet and, and very uh, gentle. And and Liz, you know, even seeing this giant red man, she's just like, you talk to me. Like that's the first thing she yeah. says. Like she's not even put off by that he's this monster. She's just like, aren't you afraid I'll burn you? And he's like, nope. And he Aww. just gives her this lollipop. Lollipops in his utility belt. I know. What a sweetie pie. Because he knows that in his line of work, he might run into kids that are scared, that are in situations that no one else is going to help them. And so he's like, this is just another thing that he makes it a priority yeah. to deal with that. And I think that that is so sweet. He it- that His look on his face when he just says, nope, and he's handing it to her and his... His tail is in a friendly way, and his whole body language is being very friendly. His face is friendly, and and, and I like the the look on Liz's face. Like you could see the tears in her eyes because yes. you know she's sad because of all the her family that died, but then also she's in this scared it's situation, so scary, yeah. and nobody will talk to her, and all that anguish. You could just see it in the in the way that uh, he drew her eyes, yeah. and the little bit of tears, and then the way she kind of looks up at Hellboy, right. and he's like. And Hellboy nope. is that eternal optimist of like, nope, it's going to be okay. Let's, yeah. you know, and he takes it upon himself to just be like, this kid needs somebody to just he, talk to them and comfort them. Because Hellboy realizes she's just a kid. Yes, of course. And so that's a very, very sweet scene. And I love how this group of people is all tied together by this one person, by Hellboy. And so yeah. it's these flashbacks are so important to for us to not only get to know those characters but Hellboy as well and so it makes sense that they're a team and it makes sense that they would do anything to go after one another and it's just very yeah um, they're really taking a uh, taking a clue from Hellboy and and they're rising to that challenge of being that kind of a hero who would take care of each other and I think that's really really awesome back with the team Abe and crew fight the monster I love the line work on this monster yeah. sorry. it's so great and they fight these warriors and Abe surmises that they're getting closer because they're getting more resistance and he suggests they run from the fight and so they start running and I love this scene where you know Abe's staying behind and Johan's like Abraham Schnell and Roger's like yes yeah, Schnell <laughs> yeah. Abe is like great the homunculus speaks German now well Roger Roger kind of picks up things from whoever he's hanging yes, out with exactly that's a very people thing to do to be excited about your new friend and pick things up from them you know johan's the newest member of the team and that's interesting to roger he's never run into somebody who speaks german so he's like yeah Schnell. like it's a very almost childlike it's very cute but i just like the way abe says i can just hear yeah, him saying yeah. it under his best. great the Roger the speaks, german. speaks german yeah <laughs> and abe pulls out these little grenades and i went back and looked these are the same kind of grenades that hellboy used in conquer worm so oh. they're those little Vulcan, those little Vulcan grenades. They they, they looked catch. different in Va- in Vampire of Prague. They looked more like black balls or whatever, like traditional bombs. Well, wasn't that an old timey ish kind of? A yeah, setting? I think so. Yeah, like, that was a little while ago. Maybe they've upgraded the technology since then and kind of made it more compact and sleek, more like kind of uh, whatever. That's the new iPod or yeah. whatever. <laughs> I don't know. And Ape throws the grenades and he blows up the monster and all them. That they're able to get away for a little bit. And they come across more machinery, and Rogers seems to know what they are. The Furnace of Gurgaroth, the Hammer and Anvil of Grom. Grom. Yeah, so we talked about Grom Warpig on the corpse, but it was spelled with one M, and oh. this is spelled with two, so I don't know if they're the same thing, but we did make that reference. 
I don't know what the furnace of Gargaroth is. I didn't look that up. I should have. These these machines are very intimidating. Yeah. Very like. Ugh. And so um, this is where the ancients built their war machines. This is where the slave revolt began. Johan says he hears terrible screaming, even though Abe and Roger hear nothing. Hurry, Johan says. It's coming from this direction. Such anguish. I cannot bear it. Oh, Lord, Abe says as they come across the machine that Liz was in, and Roger confirms that it's Liz in there. They find her in this thing, and the look on Abe's face yeah. as he as he kind of realizes. Johan says he hears her screaming in the ether, and that it will be dangerous to join her essence with her body. And Johan touches the porthole, and he pulls his hand away. The fire inside her is being made to burn like this. It is too much fire. It's consuming her spirit. Johan says, if I can reach her through that, if I can calm her, if I can guide her through the machine, I can guide her back to her own body. That's a lot of ifs, Abe says. And he looks at Roger. What do you think? I can do it, Roger says. And it has that little soft... I the, can do it, yeah. yeah. And I, I love the uh, the machinery as Johan's trying to describe how he would have to guide her out. Yeah. Sook does a good job of showing how complicated yeah. it is. You know what I mean? So... Um, kind of showing why they decide to go with Roger instead. And that's um, another thing, like, Johan has personal experience with, he has been separated from his body, and he has to, he, he knows how to guide himself in and out of these things somehow, and so maybe that, and so, like, and Roger is, all the pieces are in place. Like, Roger is like, yeah, I can handle it, and all this stuff, and so the lengths that these people are willing to go through for yeah. their friend is is impressive. And I love the pacing on this because they're kind of getting their plan together. Yeah. It's kind of a quiet moment. And then, boom, this giant explosion kind of throws the whole team aside. Yeah. And we see that figure with the double-tipped sword from earlier floating above the team. And he speaks in a foreign language. See, now finally the lamp is lit and the sword is drawn. Now those who think themselves master of the world will wake to find themselves secret subjects of a secret king. Come forth from out of the bowels of the earth. Now we who were slaves... We who slew our masters only to remain chained in the dark, our day is finally here. Heaven, I promise this. Do not be afraid. Wake the machines. Our master created them to conquer the world, to subjugate the newborn human race. The masters made them, but it is we who will set them in motion. Wake the machines is such yeah. a metal phrase. Yeah. It's yeah. a very, <laughs> it's almost like a band name or a something album name or something like that uh, like this whole layout could actually be the cover of a sure. metal album <laughs> yeah <laughs> and abe checks in on everybody i'm all right roger says but that little floating man he's all worked up about something because <laughs> they can't understand what he's saying no, right? yeah he's... yeah and the guy with the sword starts chanting johan is affected saying the creature is causing liz to burn too much she'll be destroyed We'll see about that, Abe says, as he aims his gun upwards. Wow, yeah. And Abe shoots the guy. He falls to the ground, and there's kind of a little beat where the little creatures are all kind of astonished, and then they just kind of start coming at the team. These goblins just start freaking out. Yeah. Man. I would like to point out, uh, Abe seems to be a good shot where Hellboy is not a good right. shot. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he's maybe he's using the, the right type of gun, too. Yeah. But, like, I think it's the... We don't get the individual cover art, but the cover art, I think, for this issue is, like, a little panel and it's got the Roger, Johan and Abe. And then all around it is just all those creatures. It looks oh, really wow. cool. Yeah. And so all the creatures start coming at the team. Now they're really mad. Roger, do your thing. And so Johan creates another giant scary face to scare the creatures and attack them. 
Abe and Roger struggle against them, but Roger makes it over to the machine that holds Liz. And he cracks it open, he punches it open, and he pulls out that power. And you can kind of see like him kind of pulling it out. They, yeah. they do a really good job of like, you know, it's an abstract thing, but you kind of still get a yeah. sense of what's going on here. The crackle. Yeah. The Oh, yeah, it's the Mignola the... crackle. <laughs> Roger says, Liz Sherman. And he kind of makes it over to the bag where Liz's body is, and he touches it, and Liz appears from the bag. Abe, she screams. Roger? And she realizes that she's standing there naked and Roger is just in anguish with all the energy that he was forced to generate in the machine. When it looks like he's assessing a situation as well with the little, he doesn't say anything, but we get a little um, yeah. uh, ellipses, is that what it's yeah. called? You know, and so that's kind of, he's assessing that situation there and they're still dealing with the goblins over here. And right. Like the whole thing. And Roger still has all this excess energy. So Abe tells him to dump it into the ground. And so Roger slams his hands into the ground releasing the energy and it kind of throws all the creatures around such a cool concept yeah. this is all but it also pow- so well. yeah it also powers up all the war machines too Ugh. but it made me think of remember in conquer worm where all those machines were taking the energy from Roger yeah. and then he took it back. Sure. Yeah, so that kind of reminded me of that. We kind of saw an illustration of some of those powers earlier. The leader, the guy with the sword, he says, my power, my machines, wake, yes. Aw. As they all just start to crit because with everything yeah. going on, like the whole, everything starts to cave in on himself. So he has one moment where he's like, yes, yeah. my machines. And he's like, aw, as oh. they all just start to get smashed and everything just starts to... He's collapse so, in on itself he's so yeah. happy so happy and then his face <laughs> we get a quick little shot here you can kind of see that abe is throwing his flak jacket onto liz right yeah as they all run away and so everything starts to cave in and the team are kind of running out the whole cavern is collapsing and this wind hang on everybody johan hang on and they all kind of like fall down this big hole into the darkness back at the helicopter One of the agents tells Kate that they picked up Abe's signal, and you're not going to believe this. And we cut to the Scottish Highlands 36 (laughs) hours later, and I I looked this up, 2,183 miles away. So I kind of feel like they fell through the earth and ended up in a different, like all all the earth was collapsing in on itself. So they kind of fell through that and ended up on another side of the world because you see like in the Scottish Highlands, there's all this smoke coming up and it makes me think like that's all the, from that huge earth event that happened underground and this big plume of smoke is coming out from there. They just fell through a hole in the earth. Right. They fell in the hole in through a hole in the earth and came out another point in the earth. Wow. Yeah. Weirdly enough, I think somebody asked Neil deGrasse Tyson about falling through the earth, what would happen, and he did, went into real detail about you'd start to fall and gravity would hit you and then you'd be back and forth and well, that's, all this I kind of thing. Falling it, through like the center of yeah. the earth, which is like a molten core, it's very hot or something. I mean, I, I, maybe well, this he was is... taking the theory of like even if like you could get through that and everything, right? Well, well, I'm saying like maybe there, maybe it's a point like because Earth is humongous. Like maybe there's a point like where you're just going through the crust. Yeah, but it's from yeah. no, that's what I was going to say because I, I looked it up yeah. on the. I actually looked it up on a globe, and they're not yeah. on the other side of the world, yeah. but they are kind of in the same hemisphere. Yeah. So I think it would be possible that they just went through. Right, they didn't go through the mantle the crust, and all that, yeah. just like the top levels of the Earth. Or whatever. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I mean, they still probably have to go through the mantle, but definitely not into the uh, outer core yeah. or right. the inner core. But 
anyway, I was going to say, if anybody wants to look it up, it's yeah, pretty interesting know. It's really, read. yeah, weird. That, the, that sounds interesting. I would yeah. want to read that. The team are surrounded by sheep. Our ride's here, Abe says. It's about time, Liz responds. I could use some pants. <laughs> oh, some and pants. I love Roger in the back. I wonder if they'll let me keep this. Oh, yeah. I, I made a note of that, too, in my notes here. I was, I was just like... He's kind of hugging one of yes. them or something. He's, um, he's, probably like, it's so soft and fluffy. He's hugging this sheep. I wonder if but it, it looks let like, me keep this. It looks like Johan's petting one, too. So yeah. I think they're both kind of hanging out with the sheep. It's really cute. And, and I love how Kate just kind of whispers to herself, wow, as she kind of sees them. <laughs> Oh, because I mean that's an incredible feat of teamwork there. That they're all just yeah. chilling with these sheep <laughs> now. Like you're coming back with us, Abe asks Liz. I have to. I'm pretty much naked. Liz responds. Yeah, but are you gonna stay, Abe asks. I spent the last two years in a monastery. I could use a little fun, and you guys sure know how to show a girl a good time. Thanks, Abe. Thanks for coming to get me. Liz says. No problem. It looks like they're kind of holding hands. Yes, very sweet. And Abe, he kind of puts his arm around her. No problem at all. (laughs) Ba, a sheep bleats the end. So cute. Yeah, and I really like this ending. You know, when the Guillermo del Toro movies came out of Hellboy and they paired Hellboy and Liz together, I always thought it was kind of weird. And, you know, and coming from someone who's read the comics, like I always thought it was weird first because we see here that Hellboy met Liz when she was a little girl. But then I always felt that there was more of a, if there was going to be a romantic connection, it would be more between Abe and Liz than Hellboy and Liz. And at least that's what I get from this little ending here. I was thinking about that too. I was like, you know, like, like exactly like you said, Liz was a little girl and Hellboy was kind of, you know, meeting her and like comforting her as a, as a, he was an adult. He was a grown up, And so it's sort of like, that is kind of weird to think about. So that is a, a weird thing that they did. I'm not really sure why they made that decision. I immediately thought of that, too, when I saw that little uh, part where Hellboy goes and gives her the lollipop. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of the movie. Is like, why would they pair them up? Yeah, that's weird. Right. Uh, because so. like, if they showed that, let's say if they shown that scene in the movie, like Hellboy going to give little Liz a lollipop, and, and next then, thing you know, he's being all jealous boyfriend. Yeah, that's <laughs> That'd weird. be all like people be like, Mm, Hellboy, no. Well, they took creepy. a lot of liberties with <laughs> yeah. that relationship. And I think oh, it, I know, but yeah. yeah. I think but it's, it's also, a weird choice. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's also its own universe. It's its too, own universe. So we don't sure. know so how they yeah. met in the yeah, movie exactly. universe or whatever. The, but yeah, uh, and yeah. so that's. Yeah, that's clearly a completely different universe, obviously. Yeah. That's a different take on it. But yeah, that is yeah. a little... But if I was going to ship for anybody, I, I would sure, ship for yeah. Liz and Abe, I think, rather. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, some trivia for the Hollow Earth. Mignola suggested that the look of all things Hyperborean be based on the sculptures and drawings of Polish artists Stanislav Zukalski. And so I looked up some of this guy's work. He developed a pseudo-scientific historical theory of Zermatism, Positing that all human culture was derived from post-deluge Easter Island and that mankind was locked in an eternal struggle with the sons of Yeti, the offsprings of Yeti and humans. He illustrated this theory in his works. That's so interesting. Yeah. I don't don't really know much about that at all. I'll have to go check that out. That's cool. And in the sketchbook, there are some really great Mignola designs that he drew for Sook to reference. And in them, he's got Abe, and the note says, Abe wants the flak jacket after that run-in with the monkey. (laughs) So that's why Abe has that uh, new piece of gear. And it says, Johan's bubble head is transparent, but the ectoplasm makes it slightly transparent. Slightly opaque? Yeah, so like the, the bubble head should be 
totally clear, but it's the ectoplasm that gives it. Oh yeah, that yeah. makes it you know uh, not transparent. Right, right. First off, before we go though, I just wanted to mention the title like Hollow Earth. Yeah. Uh, it made me kind of think like the characters like Abe and Roger and even Kate and Liz, they're feeling hollow oh, and empty without that. Hellboy being around. <laughs> wow, that's a even, really good illusion. Yeah, but even Roger, Liz, and Johan, you could also, they do get hollow. Yeah. yeah. Like they all, you know, Abe, uh, Liz's body is hollowed out. levels, yeah. Um, they take the, her spirit out of her body, so it's hollow. And then Johan is in that bag, yeah. yeah. And that's and then Roger has, you know, we we know that he's got space in there or whatever. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, yeah I like that. So we're gonna talk about this BPRD teaser. The story is by Mike Mignola, Christopher Golden, and Tom Snagoski again. Pencils by Ryan Sook. Inks by Ryan Sook and Curtis Arnold. Colors by Dave Stewart and letters by Dan Jackson. This three-page strip was published as a teaser for the upcoming Hollow Earth comic. The strip was published in newspaper format in Dark Horse Extra 42 through 44 from December 2001 to February 2002. At the BPRD headquarters, Kate reviews Johan's file, and we get to see kind of what he looked like before he was in the bubble outfit or whatever. And he was a medium doing a seance for the Wagner family to communicate with a deceased Heinrich Wagner. At that moment in Chengdu, China, a thief breaks into a facility housing mystical Chinese artifacts and opens this dragon statue, unleashing a disturbance that consumes everybody and soul within a hundred mile radius. And also, in the ether, its devastating scope was much greater. During the seance, the dead and the living are incinerated together. And we kind of see some um, visions of all of this. I like the little statue that he opens. Yeah. And we kind of see the seance and how, in the seance, this kind of electrical energy is kind of frying everybody um, that's connected. And one man who was not quite one or the other during that faithful moment is trapped between the two. Damn, Johan says as he sees his fried corpse. I mean, is that what you, yeah, you would just damn. come back and go, damn. Yeah. Geez, talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Still, I think he's going to fit in just fine. And we see the little... All the little pictures of everybody. Yeah, and we see the pictures on her desk. Yeah, and you see there's one of... Looks like there's one of Hellboy and Liz together. And then there's one of Roger kind of waving. So yeah. And then it looks like there's a one of, of Abe too, like a profile. So I like that she's got pictures of everybody on her desk. That, that's really it's cute. Very cute. If anyone was going to do that, it would be Kate for sure. Yeah. And so that just kind of introduces Johan's origin a little bit. You have a really cool sketch in your sketchbook of, I think, that Chris Beavers did. Yeah. Of Johan. That he, he kind of... Did a little, it was so well done, a little hint of his face. Oh, yeah. I'll have to post the, that. So in the ectoplasm? He posted anyway, yeah. like, a, yeah, he posted Johan in the bubble suit, but some of the ectoplasm is coming out, and in the ectoplasm, you can kind of see the shape of his human face. Really in there. well done. So, yeah, you should post yeah, that. Yeah, it was a nice sketch. I got it, Comic Palooza. All right, so now we're going to talk about The Killer in My Skull, introducing Lobster Johnson. Story by Mike Mignola, pencils by Matt Smith, inks by Ryan Sook, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Pat Brousseau. The Killer in My Skull was first published as a backup story to Hellboy, Boxful of Evil, number one, in August 1989. So, Boxful of Evil, it was a two-parter issue, and then in the end of the first part was The Killer in My Skull, and on the end of the second part was Abe Sapien versus Science. They were kind of attached to the end of those stories. 
And this is the first appearance of Lobster Johnson. So when I was collecting all the back issues, I really wanted that yeah. issue because that's the very first Lobster Johnson. We are in New York in 1938, and a detective and policeman investigate a death. They talk to a maid who says that the dead man had asked for tea and was in his room by himself with no windows. Somehow he got a 500-pound desk dropped on his head. Excuse me, we need to examinate the body. And we see a shadowed figure and a blonde guy with glasses. And he asks, please. Who the hell are you guys, the detective says. And he's about to kick them out when the shadowed figure hands the detective his card and it's got a lobster claw on it. Holy smokes, the detective says to himself. And he clears the cops out and Lobster Johnson reveals himself and the blonde guy, this blonde guy that he works with. They have this little machine and it's finding radiation. And it's the same radiation they found at Dr. Wiley's apartment. The lobster seems to have inside information on the police work. There was another murder. Dr. Wally was crushed by his sofa, and the lobster says that this killing is the fourth, and the blonde guy notices every one of those fellas is in this photo. So this is like one of those common tropes, right, where you're like, oh, and they're oh, yeah. all in this photo, and yeah. everyone's been killed except for this one guy, and so we got to look at that guy. Yeah. This is great. They were all employed at Zinko Davis Laboratories. So we all remember Zinko as yeah. um, oh, it, yeah. from the Conqueror Worm and other stories where we've heard of their products. There's one guy in this photo, and what's up with his hair, they say, right? <laughs> it kind of reminded me of Hades from Hercules, the disease oh. Hercules. Oh, yeah, you're right. He does kind of have that. <laughs> but just in this little black and white shot. It's almost bright of Frankenstein-y. Not yeah. quite anywhere near as big, obviously, but just in general shape. And the lobster says he's either the next victim or the killer. An hour later, we see this red-haired guy from the photo, and the lobster bursts in with a detective. Jigs up, Buster. Come clean, the detective says. <laughs> like all that. Oh, man. That old nope. 1930s, 40s. This man's name is Stanley Corn. Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> Stanley Corn. I accuse you the, of the murder of Dr. Skinner, Wiley Kent, and Gowlan. Confess. Confess. And Stanley says he doesn't know what they're talking about. The lobster says he knows Stanley just got fired from Zinko and all his research team are now dead. And Stanley says the team tried to screw him and he's been in his apartment for weeks. And the detective says, smells like it. Um, what's what? this gizmo? And he holds up that helmet and we kind of get this quick little flashback panel to let us know that it's like a mind control helmet or it's some sort of thing, right? They do an enhancing helmet. Yeah, they they do a good job of kind of, you know, um, telling this this whole little pulp story. That's what I was. Oh, man. And like, I actually even have a note that says that we're on the same page. Like, this is such a cool mashup of like a pulp, gritty, noir detective. And then like also that classic superhero kind of old school comics, like with a twist of this stylistic art and this ultra dark storyline. It's just such a great combination. Like there's a line right here on it that says your reign of terror is over and yeah it's just like, yeah and they they mash all that up with this like super dark very dark shit like we're about to get to that on the next page here it's just like really messed up stuff right also i'd like to you know how you said like the photo trope about you know all these people except one guy is dead and, yeah. then, and then it goes to the we know you were fired and all your research team is dead except you i mean if plays perfectly into that whole right exactly right into the whole pulp noir thing yeah (laughs) the lobster says that stanley has been continuing his brain experiments on his own brain stanley has changed his brain to send brainwave energy out to kill 
And the blonde guy is like looking at his machine. He's like, he's trying to do it. It's no use, Corn. Lobster says this device was designed not only to detect your brainwave energy, but to jam it. And he tells him to surrender to Detective Cooper or face the harsher justice of the lobster's claw. So good. And then, I, and then this guy's like, yeah, I love that little <laughs> yeah. yeah at the end. I'm casting all of this in my head. I would, the the detective with the brown hat and trench coat, I would, I think I would have to cast him as um, Kevin Dunn. Who's that? Kevin okay. Dunn, he's, uh, okay. he's in Veep. He's uh, oh. Ben Cafferty. Oh, okay, okay, in yes. Veep, I, I, I love him. Yeah. I love him. I think he would be so good as this. And then, like, the blonde-haired guy with glasses, Alan Tudyk, all oh, the way, for yeah. sure. Okay. Okay. And then who would be Lobster Johnson, though? Because, oh, man. I wish, uh, uh, and I, I can always think, I can only think of older guys, but, like, a, a young Bruce Campbell, I oh think, would have God, a great chin. Would so he would good. have a great chin for the lobster. And he's got There's, a good voice, too. Uh, and, and I know this one's probably a little overused. I was thinking Nathan Fillion. Nathan uh, yeah, Fillion. he also yeah. has a great, great chin. Oh, he Nathan. has a great chin. Well, he's also got, I could hear him saying these lines like, uh, the harsher justice of the lobster's claw. Like, I can hear him saying that. That's really good. Yeah. Good one. And what if it's true? What can the law do to me? This body never killed anyone. It's the mine, Corn uh. says. Can you put that in prison? Can you chain up a man's thoughts? How long do you think your crude little machine will work against me? And the lobster says that they're returning him to Zinko Davis to be examined. The butchers, Stanley says. Ugh. And he reaches for his gun. The butchers, they won't get my excellent brain. Better this way than that. And Stanley shoots himself in the head. Very so that's pretty that's that's pretty messed up. Yeah. I like what Lobster says. Self inflicted justice. Yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> Terrible. Oh, Love it. But the the machine starts beeping on the blonde guy's um machine. And I think his name's Bob. We'll find out later his name's Bob. Um I don't think that's a huge spoiler. And so he starts screaming and we see the little point as the bullet pops out of his head yeah and and that little point sound i remember that sound also occurred when the little on the vampire of prague when the little snake grew little wings it said that and we get this uh, also the crick crack as it's like coming out of the head and this green brain emerges in a cloud stanley's body from below i am innocent it was always the brain this is a very manola panel Yeah. yeah The brain kind of and the spinal cord come after Lobster Johnson and it pulls him into the air. Look out, boss. The spinal cord. Yeah. Awesome. So um, let's pause real quick. Let's go back to Conqueror Worm just for a second. When the team is being dispatched to the Conqueror Worm mission, Manning tells the team about the events at Hunt's Castle. And Hellboy says, I remember the guys talking about that from when I was a kid. That was the last Lobster Johnson mission. And Manning's like, don't pay attention to him, Roger. That was just, you know, a fictional bad movies. And Hellboy's like, the movies weren't too bad. Mobsters showed up with claws uh, burned into their foreheads, and there were rumors of weirder stuff. And we see a quick panel of Lobster Johnson being pulled in the air by a brain. Oh, yeah. That was from uh, yeah. Catch. That was from Conquer Worm. So Good in Conquer Worm, they 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 reference this exact scene right here. Oh. So I'll probably this week post it online. The comparison between That's the two, great. so you can see That's that. That's super great. Anyway, the lobster tells his pal to turn up the machine, but it's already turned up and about to overload. The brain zaps the lobster, so it shoots this like beam at him, and it kind of burns him a little bit. And the lobster grabs the machine, still running, and he slams it into the brain just as it's about to blow up. So the machine's starting to overload, and he kind of puts it up there just as it's about to blow up, and it all kind of blows up together. 
That worked out. Looks dead, I guess. How am I going to write this up, the detective says. Don't. Destroy the evidence and don't tell anyone. And be glad you're not me, because I've seen worse things than this. Oh, man. The end. And we get the little lobster claw the Little lobster end. claw. Yeah, so we kind of get one of these Lobster Johnson stories. And we'll, we'll get some more Lobster Johnson down the line. But this is a good little intro story to kind of see what he's all about. So we are skipping Abe Sapien versus Science. We've already discussed that on our Conqueror Worm episode. So that's included in this set of stories. But we're going to go straight to Abe Sapien, Drums of the Dead. Well, I just want to say, it, uh, when we read that the other, the last time, we were wondering why Abe Sapien wasn't involved in that order. But now after going out and reading Hollow Earth, it's like, oh, okay, that's why they put the Abe Sapien story here. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, yeah, some of these stories were kind of like one-shots, and they kind of included them in these BPRD trades collected with the other stories. Very cool. But this story actually came out in 1998, March of 98. Um, So it was before Hollow Earth or any of these other stories had come out. Okay. This issue featured the backup Hellboy story, Heads. So that story, Heads, was also Uh, with this in the same issue. And Drums of the Dead was the first story in the Hellboy universe to not feature the character Hellboy. It was also the first story to not feature Mignola as writer or artist. Wow. So that's pretty interesting. Stories by Brian McDonald, art by Derek Thompson, colors by James Sinclair. Remember, James Sinclair did the colors on mm-hmm. yeah. Wake yeah. the Devil and some of those other stories and letters by Pat Brousseau. We open on Sharks. And for some reason, I thought of the shark that scared Hellboy in The Third Wish. Remember, he was oh, fighting the mermaids, oh, and right. he, he was doing really well, and then the shark scared him, and he dropped the bell. And then that's when they were able to hammer that nail into his into his horn. So we witnessed this horrible event, right? Thousands of sharks appear around a ship called Polaris. The crew hear drums, and it starts to drive them mad. One crew member is having a really hard time, and he gets possessed. He starts speaking in tongues and in foreign languages, and he goes after one of his crewmates with a knife and ultimately jumps in the ocean to be devoured by sharks. And this part where he's like going mad and kind of all the sweat on his forehead, it just kind of really disorients me a little bit. I'm kind of like, it just really, it it, it unnerves me. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like, it really makes you feel how creepy. It's creepy opening. Yes, yes. And how tense the scene is. Yes. And so after this horrible thing happens, we're at the BPRD headquarters in Fairfield, Connecticut, and this guy talks on the phone. I was wondering if this was Manning. Is, yeah. Is this Manning? I, it, it probably I, I is, because yeah. he seems like he's a guy in charge. Yeah. And he has a picture of himself with Hellboy behind him, as, uh, as well as some other relics and artifacts. He talks on the phone with the owner of a shipping company, and we assume that this is the crew that we saw experiencing that event we just, uh, we just went through. And they want the BPRD to send out Hellboy, but they say that he's away on assignment and unavailable. I'd also like to point out how the BPRD building, this is the first time we're getting it from a different angle. It's a different angle, angle. yeah. Oh, you're right. I have a note about that, too. I like that. (laughs) Good detail. Manning references Abe taking down the lake monster in British Columbia. This is a reference to the Ogopogo, which Hellboy also referenced in Boxful of Evil. Remember in the epilogue... Abe had been shot, and then Hellboy's like, I saw the Ogopogo throw him onto a bunch of rocks, and he was fine. <laughs> so they, they, I like how they both kind of mention this, that Abe fought the Ogopogo right. and, and, or whatever. Manning basically tells the guy, if you want any help, you'll have to make do with Abe Sapien. Abe arrives on the ship with a psychic, Garrett Omada. 
And Abe explains Garrett's origin. He was in a coma for almost two years, and when he came out of it, he said he had gone to heaven and come back, and now he could see spirits. Garrett says the ship is clean, and as they talk, we learn that Abe gets seasick, which is kind of a funny detail, right? He has to take Dramamine. Oh, Dramamine. Well, yeah, well, yeah. he says, like, being in the water is different from being, like, on top of the water. Yeah, I can know, see that. Yeah, it's choppy, and there's waves, but then when you're in the water, it's, you know, it's you're in the water. But it's still kind of funny that it's, yeah. Abe gets oh, yeah. seasick. Just the optics of it are very counterintuitive. Garrett believes the events have to do with voodoo, which would explain speaking in tongues and possessions. Abe wonders why it happens at sea, and suddenly Garrett starts freaking out. He says he feels like he's dying. He feels spirits that are angry and filled with sorrow and fear. And he's like, I didn't think it was going to be this bad, man. I like that part. Yeah. And we kind of see that brow thing where all the sweat is kind of forming on his brow. That's just really, those panels are really unnerving to me for some reason. I'm just yeah. like, oh. It's it, very it, heavy metal. I, I get yeah. to kind of, I, I kind of feel that a little bit. Yeah. All of a sudden, Garrett pukes all over, like projectile vomits all over Abe. And as Abe's standing there with all the puke all over him, he's just like, this can't be good. If, yeah. his, if, if his psychic is having this event. It's very exorcist. You know, so he tries to get Garrett to snap out of it, but the situation escalates as the drums start to pound and everything. And Garrett transforms into this crazy monster. It's like a boar with, like, nail heads sticking out of it. What did you think of this weird monster design? Yeah, it's like a weird amalgam. It's got, like, lizard feet. And... Yeah, I was going to bring up the, the lizard feet. Yeah. The... It's kind of... He's kind of got a, the topography of his skin is very, you know, different colors and different textures. And it's very. So now Abe has to fight this monster. And so they go they go back and forth a little bit. Abe is ultimately forced to shoot Garrett. Um, but he's still overpowered by the monster. And Abe gets stabbed by the monster's spear in the leg. And it looks pretty grisly. Thompson makes it look pretty painful as Abe kind of pulls the spear out. And he drops his gun in the process. And he uses the spear to stab the monster in the back. And yeah, this art style really reminds me of like a heavy metal it album very, or something. Yeah. yeah. Well, or yeah. heavy metal. I was referring to like heavy metal, like literally heavy metal, the the magazine with all the different artists yeah. and stuff like that. It's very like something out of a heavy metal magazine. Maybe the, it was this last panel right here on what page we're on page 117 of the omnibus kind of yeah. reminded me of a, it, i was like that could be a heavy metal album cover it could. or a logo or something it could be like a, like a t-shirt yeah. or yeah like it's a heavy metal awesome. band yeah, I really for sure that. i agree yeah in the clutches of the monster abe pleads to garrett to remember what happened to him and garrett hearing about his origin and how he was supposed to help people help lost souls find their way not to become a murderer he kind of snaps out of it and it turns him back into human form i like how abe was able to um you know through all the violence he wasn't able to calm the situation but then when he's like he started like talking to him he's like just remember who you are and so he was able to de-escalate the situation by just talking about it yeah, yeah good point i like that a lot yeah Afterwards, Garrett says that the creature that possessed him was some kind of protector spirit. He also got an impression of a triangle and spirits that wanted to go home. Garrett believes it is an amalgamation of spirits from different countries, cultures, and languages praying over hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. So in your discussion right now, you guys were just saying that it seemed like an amalgam. Yeah. This monster seemed like an amalgam of spirits. And so I never caught that. But yeah, it kind of goes along with what Garrett says. We see Abe string up some internet, right? He's He goes to the top and kind of put something up there so he can get on the computer and he does some research and he discovers the events are related to the slave trade route. 
The slaves were obviously kept in awful conditions, and the sick and dead were thrown overboard. And there is at least one account of slaves jumping into shark-infested waters in order to avoid being sold into slavery. And so all this is just, like, really messed up, but also tying into that historical fiction, which we know slavery was obviously awful. Yeah, very intense subject matter, and so kind of... Um, yeah. I'm not sure what to think about putting this extra layer on top of it. I guess on one hand, it is important for people to know just how horrific these real events are and just what these people had to deal with being crammed all together, human beings crammed all together into one space and, you know... They're dealing with like all oh, excrement and you can barely breathe and they're just like all crammed together and it's, you know, they're being sold into slavery and that's obviously just like the worst fucking thing, crime against humanity. Like you just, it's, it's unbelievable. You can't even conceive of it. And, but it's important for people to know that that really did happen. But then on the other hand, like adding this extra kind of layer on top of it of like, well, now their ghosts are haunting the water. And so it's kind of a, I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure. Like I, I wouldn't know how to handle a project like that, so I'm I'm just hoping that um, you know we see that it's handled with I guess sensitivity. I don't really yeah. know like what to make of it, but yeah. yeah, it's it's important for people to to deal with it. I guess is where I ended up on that. It's important to deal with these ideas. So yeah, I have to agree there. It is a um, very sensitive subject. You can't just make light of, but I do. And I don't think that's what I, they're trying to do here. I do appreciate yeah. that they're um they're they're bringing it up and they're showing how or they're showing how horrific it is. Yeah, yeah. and it's something that you know that doesn't it doesn't get talked about ever. So, no, you know, and I so mean, there are people who might not even realize just how fucked up like yeah. the condition the conditions in that whole. Well, what do you mean when you mean transporting slaves? Like what were the, what was the actual event? Right. They had to they yeah. crammed these people into this these ships and these people would even commit suicide to avoid it. And like they died, they would they would all die and their bodies would just dumped overboard and they just would they were treated just like objects and that's just such a it is like the worst possible fucking thing you could do. And so it's one of those things where Yeah. If people aren't aware of just how horrific it is, this does illustrate that and this does maybe it would prompt someone to go research it and look it up online and just like Abe is doing. Maybe that would be an example to be like, I didn't know about this. Let me learn more about it. And so maybe in in that context it, it is acceptable to do that. So that's that's what I kept trying to think of of that's, you know, where I was coming at it from. And so just like um this added things a storytelling uh vehicle of okay, now we're dealing with the ghosts right. of these people and what would happen if their ghosts were here and what would you do? And ultimately, you know, Abe decides to do something that the, what he thinks of is I'm trying to, I'm going to try and make myself responsible for this. Right. As we're about yeah. to see. Anyway, yeah. I guess we'll talk about that when we get to it. Yeah, yeah. Abe and Abe and Garrett discuss the case. We kind of see that Garrett's obviously feeling better and Garrett wonders why the drums before the attack. Abe suspects that it's how the spirits communicate their attack plans, and he references the Haitian Revolution that was started on August 22, 1971. Bookman Duddy signaled the start of the revolution, and he was a voodoo priest, but I couldn't find a reference to him signaling with a drum. What what year did you say that was? Uh, 1791. I'm sorry, what did I say? Did I say 1971? I feel like that's what you said, but I... Uh, could have heard that wrong in my I head. probably did say that. Thank you for correcting me that I said the wrong year. So yeah, that happened on August 22nd, 1791, which is the year that Abe references here. 
I did look at some of the history and I found this one history page uh, that it said, quote, to the sound of warlike drums and chants armed with sticks and cutlasses, the revolutionaries went from plantation to plantation, gathering more warriors into their ranks. Nice. So it sounds like they did use drums. So there is a reference to that. And it's cool that they're going back and and saying, hey, here's a revolution that happened. Here's where the they were fighting back and they were successful and they were fighting for their life and their freedom like that's i think that's really that's that's cool that they're they're making it a point to include all this it's not just this display of like oh we're using slaves for our story like it's a very they're trying to treat it with respect this topic yeah yeah and and thompson is doing that historical fiction also kind of like mignola does gary doesn't think it's a good idea for abe to go back into the water with his wound because sharks are attracted to blood and abe says pray for me and pass me that knife, please. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And then he dives into the water. Abe fights and stabs a shark when he gets in the water, and the blood of the injured shark attracts all the other sharks, and that gives Abe a chance to dive deep into the ocean where he finds the bones and the souls of all these slaves still bound in their chains. And they tell Abe to take us home, fish God, so that we may die. And Abe gathers them all up. He gathers up all the chains and the bones as much as he can, and he takes them up. In his report, he writes, An interesting irony, the ship's name Polaris is the proper name of the North Star, the star that escaped slaves would follow to freedom. It's so interesting. And it's, I, I again, just want to reiterate that I like that they're including all of yeah. these things that would maybe prompt you to go look that up for yourself and find out more about just what happened there. Yeah. We gathered up all the bones we could find and buried them on the shores of West Africa. Since then, no paranormal activity has occurred. They do, however, report a significant reduction in the number of sharks. Hmm. The end. And we see kind of a lone shark swimming off. So I don't have a, a ton of trivia for this, but I did look up the North Star was also the name of an anti-slavery newspaper that was published by Frederick Douglass. Very cool. And I looked up Brian McDonald and Derek Thompson, the writer and the artist for the story. What I thought was interesting is that both of these guys um, seem to be known more for their work on screen productions, mm. although they both worked on the Predator comics, and I could totally see the sure. art style going with a Predator okay. comic. I think what's interesting about the way they chose to in the story is that um, you know, Abe ultimately wanted to make himself responsible for the situation and, and he did what he thought was best, which was maybe if I lay their remains to rest somewhere and maybe if I, you know, maybe if I treat their remains with respect or that's maybe um, the writer's way of saying this is how we want to treat this subject is this, we want to try and treat it with respect and we want to try and, you know, yeah help people know more about it and maybe prompt them to find out about it. And so that's, I think that's an interesting, it's interesting. Well, awesome. Awesome discussion on this episode. And I'm really excited to begin into the BPRD. So what do you guys think of Hollow Earth and having this different kind of it's very different from Hellboy just wandering around, you know, these solo adventures with Hellboy are just they have a very different feel to kind of these a little bit more grounded team missions. Well, I'm a huge sucker for an ensemble story. I love an ensemble cast. I love a good team. I love a good team episode, you know what I mean, or whatever. I yeah. think that it's um, – I'm a sucker for that sort of storytelling. I really dig that. 
Yeah, I, I enjoy getting back to the BPRD because I feel like once we started, when we first started, it was like Hellboy with the BPRD, yeah. and then he quit, and he went off on his own journey, and it's like, now we're back to, meanwhile. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, it's really cool because we got to know Abe and Liz and Roger and Kate a little bit. They're all before, excellent characters. Uh, before all of this started, and now we're getting to meet um, Johan, and so... Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing, I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. Yeah, one thing we didn't talk about that I want to bring up really quick. I thought it was cool they worked in a lot of Hellboy there. We still got Hellboy, even Absolutely. though he's not in the story. They still kind of alluded to him. His presence was still there. Sook did an awesome job of drawing him. So, yes. yeah, that was a good like ease into this new world. Hey, look, here's some characters you still recognize. Here's some yeah. mythology that you're going to recognize. But that also, Hellboy is still a part of their yeah. lives, even though he's not there, physically there. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, very good. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. So tell us your thoughts on our journey through the BPRD with Hollow Earth, Lobster Johnson, Killer in My Skull, and Abe Sapien's Drums of the Dead. Send us your feedback at hellboybookclub at gmail.com. You can join us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club and check out our friends at uh, mignolaverse.com. You can find the podcast at Podbean. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. On our next episode, we'll be discussing The Soul of Venice, Dark Waters, Night Train, There's Something Under My Bed, Another Day at the Office. So pull out your back issues, trades, and whatever format you love to read these in, and join us along for our next story. Thanks a lot, everybody. I'm John Salinas. I'm Danielle. And I'm Aubrey Lovelace saying, Happy birthday, John. Happy birthday, John. I've been drinking with skeletons. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.